It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and it's great to be with you. Yes, it's the weekend before the Christmas weekend. Anyway, during the week, you can join us on uh, Fox Business Network. Name of the show is Kudlow. 4 p.m. every day, 4 to 5 p.m. And uh, if you can't make it at 4, you can just uh, text up your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show, and you'll never miss a thing. And right here, you can live stream us on the Internet. It's LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com runs throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. And I want to talk about, i got to begin with a very simple idea. Save America, kill the omnibus bill. Okay? Kill the bill. This is a very important story. I mean, incredibly important story. $1.7 trillion spending bill, which will probably be larded up by about $200 billion more, $200 billion more when it's all said and done, which is already at least $1 trillion above the pre-COVID baseline. So we're talking about serious money here. I might add serious money that could well lead to more inflation, which could lead to the Fed clamping down. They were very tough this week in their policy announcements, raising rates by 50 basis points, but a very stern recession-like policy announcement. The point is, this is a big spending bill. It should be stopped, and it can be stopped, except the Senate Republican leadership, Mitch McConnell, has thrown in with the Democrats and opposes, indeed is betraying, the new House Republican leadership, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Elise Stefanik, etc., etc., etc. It's an incredible story. It's a story of betrayal. Because this bill, this monstrosity of a spending bill, which will, of course, necessitate more borrowing and more federal debt, we're over $31 trillion in debt as it is now, this is the Democrats' pet peeves. They pet uh, pet projects, right? All their liberal, progressive itches will be scratched, and Republicans are going along with it. The option, which they should adopt, is a short-term CR. It's called a continuing resolution, which would fund the government at the current services baseline for another couple of weeks. They've got one pending now. For a week. But by the time they go home next weekend, they want to have an omnibus bill that would take spending for the entire year through September 30th of next year, 2023. Well, I don't want that. Republicans in the House don't want that because they want to take this bill and lower spending and reprioritize spending and add things like opening the spigots 
for oil and gas production, preserving the Trump tax cuts, for example, helping out on the border, more agents on the border, maybe money to build the wall. Title 42 is going to expire in, uh, I don't know, just a few days, I think, this coming week. And for some incredible reason, the Senate Republicans see their real enemy as the new House Republicans. And they are betraying them by backing this omnibus bill, which would prevent the new House Republican leadership, right? They fired Pelosi, but it would prevent the new House Republican leadership from carving up an entire new budget plan, a good plan. I mean, certainly a better plan. It's absolutely incredible. And what you have here is like the old uh, old boys school, the appropriators, who often run Congress, or it seems to. You've got Richard Shelby, Republican of Alabama, who, by the way, has a fine conservative record down through the years. He's a former Democrat turned Republican. And he is um, he's blowing up his reputation in the last few weeks. You have these special interest earmark projects. Earmarks are back. I think there's about $16 billion worth of earmarks in this package. I thought we put an end to earmarks. Earmarks are the gateway drug to even more spending. Anyway, Mr. Shelby, I know him, a fine person, as I say, is a good conservative. He's the earmark leader. He's the earmark most valuable player. He's got $650 million worth of earmarks. And in fact, of the top 10 earmarkers, in this monstrosity omnibus bill, eight of them are Republicans. Well, wait a minute, you might say. Didn't the Republicans just try to run on the platform that they would cut spending in order to limit government, in order to restrain inflation? Well, yeah, that's what they said, but that's not what they're doing. They're throwing in with Democrats and all this Green New Deal stuff and the CHIPS bill and the phony Inflation Reduction Act, all that will be made permanent rather than temporary. In fact, a lot of the COVID legislation will be permanently built into the spending baseline to go on forever. It was meant to stop. COVID has stopped. I know it hasn't stopped, but the COVID... National emergency has stopped. We don't need this. We have an economy where the unemployment rate is 3.7%. The emergency is gone. Anyway, Mr. Shelby and other Republicans, uh, they are winning the Earmarks World Series. They're all going to make the playoffs. It's really an incredible story. You know, there's a way out of this. I want to read you. I want to read. We'll get. We'll get the actual quote. Uh, we'll get it. Uh, the sound uh, on uh, the next segment. But um, I guess it was Wednesday night on Fox Business. I interviewed Senator Rand Paul, who was just one terrific senator, one terrific senator, and a, just a really good person in general. 
But here's what he said. I'm just going to read you his quote. The omnibus will be 3,000 pages. We'll get it in two hours before they want to pass it. No one will read it. But hidden in the 3,000 pages will be what we will waive Pago. We will waive Pago. All right, what's Pago? Pago is a series of budget caps that were put into place in 2010 and get waived every year. It takes 60 votes to waive. And that's what they do. They don't abide by these budget caps. Because if you implement the budget caps, if you implement the budget caps, that means you have automatic across-the-board spending cuts, a little fiscal discipline. In this case, we'd be talking about, I don't know, $150 billion of spending cuts. Now, that's spending relief. That's consistent with the Republican message. But Rand Paul is saying, the omnibus will be 3,000 pages. We'll get it two hours before they want us to pass it. No one will read it. And hidden in the 3,000 pages will be, we will waive Pago. So my friend Steve Moore is right. It would take 41 votes. But the other thing is 41 votes would stop the big spending. 41 votes. In other words, you won't get 60. Schumer won't get his 60 to waive Pago or the automatic cuts. With 41 Republican votes, they would stop the big spending. And Senator Paul goes on to say, this is Rand Paul, we have completely and totally abdicated the power of the purse. Republicans are emasculated. They have no power, and they are unwilling to gain that power back. He said that on my show. It went viral as it should. It was a phenomenal statement. A phenomenal statement. Why has the Republican Senate leadership given up their power? Why have they emasculated themselves? Why are they betraying the House Republicans who don't want a year-long omnibus bill? They want something they can carve up and provide Republican alternatives, Republican priorities. This shouldn't be that hard. This should not be that hard. But unfortunately, Mitch McConnell and the Senate leadership is going along with a Democratic plan. And here's the worst part. Even before they begin, even before the House Republicans take over Congress, which is January 3rd, If you pass an omnibus spending bill in the next week, which is what they're angling for in the Senate, then that takes out the entire year because it will pass the House with Democratic votes. The current House, the new House, it would never pass. The current House, it will pass. And that takes away Kevin McCarthy's power to alter priorities, whether it's spending or taxing or regulating or fossil fuels or border protection. These old line senators, three or four of them meeting 
in some kind of smoke-filled room with a couple of staff people ginning up a 3,000-page bill with their own earmarks in them will stop the Republican takeover of the House. It will stop the new Republicans from reprioritizing, from cutting spending, from cutting taxes, from H.R. 1, which would open up the oil and gas spigots, from providing new money to protect the border, which is in a catastrophic state now. Why is McConnell doing this? Why aren't Senate Republicans just stopping the spending by providing 41 votes, which would institute PAYGO, which would slash $150 billion? Instead, they're going to give a bill for the next year, which would betray the House Republicans and would spend another $200 billion on top of the $1.7 trillion that already have in place. This is crazy. We need regular order. Why the Senate Republican leadership wants to undermine the new House Republicans is beyond me. I don't get it. I know it's bad economics, but it's incredibly bad politics. So I'll just say this, folks. Save America. Kill the omnibus bill. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. So we continue my assault on the Senate Republicans who are betraying the new House Republicans to take over the House January 3rd. I think they're betraying anybody that voted Republican, anybody that gave them money. Senator Ron Johnson, who opposes the leadership in the Senate, will be on at the half hour. Let me simply read. uh, No, we're going to play some sound from Senator Rand Paul and what he said on my TV show, Kudlow, on Fox Business. Here it comes. Listen to what Rand Paul said. The bad news is that that last time I tried it, there were four votes, me and three others. (laughs) This, This brings upon us the lie that Republicans really are fiscally conservative. The Democrats aren't. They will not pretend to be fiscally conservative. Not one of them up here gives a darn about the debt. Republicans all profess to, but when you make them vote on the pay-go resolution, pay-as-you-go, that we can't have new spending without offsetting it, they always vote to exempt it. So the omnibus will be 3,000 pages. We'll get it two hours before they want to pass it. No one will read it. But hidden in the 3,000 pages will be we're going to waive pay-go. So Steve Moore's right. It would take 41 votes. But the other thing is 41 votes would stop the big spending. If 41 of us said no and held our ground until there was a compromise, we could force Democrats to reduce spending. We have completely and totally abdicated the power of the purse. Republicans are emasculated. They have no power, and they are unwilling to gain that power back. The only way they can get it, divide the spending into 12 bills, and then decide to hold one of them hostage or two of them hostage, and then apply policy changes in the House But they've got to do it. They've got to capture this, and we'd have to do the budget the way it's supposed to be. Budget, 12 appropriation bills, and then try to attach some policy, like removing the 87,000 IRS agents from the IRS budget. When we try to do it in one bill, the Republicans don't have the intestinal fortitude. They always collapse, and they fear shutting government down so no policy objectives ever get added. 
The only way we can do it is if we actually do what we're supposed to do, budget, 12 appropriation bills, and then decide which ones you want to fight over. What a statement. What a fantastic statement. From a brilliant statement from a brilliant guy, Senator Rand Paul, Kentucky. What he said there on my show went viral, went everywhere. And then uh, various columns have been written about it, as they should. It's a brilliant statement. Unfortunately, his uh, Republican Senate colleague from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell, has gone the other way once again. McConnell sided with the Schumer Democrats. And, you know, Rand talks about some technical stuff. Let me try to provide a little bit of, uh, we'll talk about this with Senator Ron Johnson in just a few moments at the half hour. But what he's talking about is called regular order. Regular order is simple. It means by law, the Congressional Budget Act, which was passed, I don't know, 45, 50 years ago, uh, each chamber comes up with a budget resolution which gives spending ceilings and revenue floors and hands them out to the uh, tax writing committees and other appropriation committees, okay? There are 12 appropriation committees. Each one has specific area. You know, there's energy, defense, health, environment, et cetera, et cetera. And those committees are supposed to hold open hearings. They invite witnesses in, expert witnesses to testify, liberals and conservatives. I I used to do this many times when I was a younger man. Uh, you know, if the Republicans, you know, they usually, typically there'd be three witnesses. If the Republicans held the uh, majority, you'd have two Two Republicans and one Democrat. If the Democrats held the majority, you'd have two Democrats and one Republican. Anyway, I've been on the majority side. I've been on the minority side. I don't do it anymore because it's a waste of my time. Most of the time, I don't even do it. But the expert witnesses in full public view, I mean, you can have several panels of witnesses. They discuss the merits of the level of spending proposed and the actual policies. Well, they don't do that anymore. The House did it last year. The Senate hasn't done it in years. In years. And as Rand Paul said, they'd rather jam through a 3,000-page bill where the members get it two hours before they're supposed to vote, and no one will have read it. So there's no due process here. There's no accountability. No public accountability. Taxpayers have no clue what's going on. And Rand's going on to say, with with regard to these 12 appropriation committees, right, I'm talking about both the House and the Senate. It's the same process in both houses. Um, if Republicans can tie up, or if the minority party can tie up one of these appropriation bills, then effectively you're tying up the whole process. And then you have to go to the floor and hash it out You know, you could put the bill on the floor rather than run it through committee and no vote, but there'll be amendments and the public will see a legitimate debate. That's called democracy. What they're doing now with 3,000-page documents 
in a small smoke-filled room is the most undemocratic thing I've ever seen. And by the way, it violates, I mean, it runs up against the fact that the voters elected a Republican House. And the Republicans in the Senate working with the Democrats are betraying the Republican House. That's undemocratic. What McConnell should be doing is give the new Republican House majority a shot at it. Not hard. Give them a shot. Anyway, that's the process that Rand Paul was talking about. So I'm going to take a quick break here. We're going to continue this conversation. It is such a terribly important issue. Too much spending, too much borrowing, too much inflation. Senator Ron Johnson's going to come on. He's one of the critics of what the leadership in the Senate has done. And we'll continue this whole conversation. Why is McConnell betraying the House? It's incredible. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back in just a jiffy. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are going to talk, bring in right away Senator Ron Johnson, recently reelected to his seat in Wisconsin. Senator Johnson, welcome, sir. Thank you for your time on a Saturday Good morning. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Larry, and Merry Christmas to you and your audience. Indeed. Merry Christmas to you, sir, and my longtime friend. So, of course, we're talking about this omnibus bill fiasco. We're talking about the size of the bill. We're talking about um, why it is that the Senate leadership is trying to betray the House leadership. We have a new House Republican leadership. Why not give them a shot? A CR is a much better idea than an omnibus bill that would cover the entire year. And in general, we're just talking about the process. Rand Paul was on the show. You were on the show this week talking about this. Rand Paul was on the show. There are budget caps. You just need 41 Republicans to vote for him. Anyway, none of this is happening, Senator Johnson. What is going on here? Well, Larry, in uh, the day after my reelection, I wrote a column that ran the Wall Street Journal where I talked about the fact that we need to restore function and fiscal responsibility to the federal government, to Washington, D.C. And this is exactly what I was talking about. You know, I've been there for 12 years. The way it should work is every one of those years, we should have passed a budget that uh, hopefully was as close to balance as possible. And then that budget would drive an appropriation process where you'd bring up 12 separate pro- appropriation bills. And again, they're all massive because the federal government's massive. Uh, but at least you do it 12 separate times, uh, bring it on the floor, open it up for amendments, which is how you debate things in in Congress, and uh, pass each one individually before the end of the fiscal year. I've been there now 12 years. That means we should have brought up 144 appropriation bills over those 12 years. I, I think we brought up six. Mm. So mm. You, you start understanding the profound level of dysfunction, uh, but it's it really is on a bipartisan basis. Um, this puts all the power, but doing it the way we're doing it, never bring up an appropriation bill, you know, coming up to the end of the fiscal year, passing a con- continuing resolution because we can't shut down government. So that's always what's hanging over certainly Republicans' heads. Let's face it, Democrats will never get blamed for shutting down the government. It will always be put, you know, the press will always blame the Republicans. And that drives an awful lot of the psychology within the conference. So when we're in the minority, like now, well, I mean, if, if, if we 
if we don't if we don't agree to give closure on these bills, if we if we don't agree to this, we're going to be accused of shutting down government. When the, when we're in the majority, the mantra is, well, you know, we're, we're elected, we have to govern, we have to govern, and and this is this is how we have to concede all the spending to get ten Democrats to join us. So it's 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 the same psychology every time we're in the minority or in the majority, and so the process is completely broken. Uh, it, it is driven, quite honestly, by a public that likes government spending. I mean, let's be honest. The public likes the amount of money coming from the federal government and also driven by the fact, Larry, that we never talk about the numbers. You know, what, one thing that's been uh, interesting, I'll, I'll use that word, interesting over the last couple of weeks uh, as, as we've been starting this debate is when reporters come up to me, I did this with my colleagues, too. I just asked them. Anybody know how much we spent last year total of federal government? And I just get a blank stare. This is from members of Congress as well as reporters. And so I go on and say, don't feel guilty. It's not your fault because we never talk about it. Larry, as Congress, we are the board of directors Mm. of the largest financial entity in the world, Mm. and we never talk the total budget. We'll we'll talk about little, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the China deal, $250 billion. But let me give your listeners the number. Last year, we spent $6.3 trillion. You know what we were spending in 2019 before the pandemic? $4.4 trillion. In other words, we increased the baseline there by about $1.9 trillion in just three years. Now, we're arguing over an omnibus, which is just less than 30% of the budget, you know, discretionary spending. I don't know what the total amount is going to be other than the last report from Treasury said that this year we'll spend about $6 trillion, 36% more than we spent in 2019. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers out there, but it's important to understand these things because we never talk about this. We never talk about how massively we're increasing spending, how completely out of control this is. Um, People need to understand that, and they simply don't. So, again, we get these budget fights. We, we fight over this for a week or so, and it gets passed, and we just move on, and we continue the mortgage of our, of our kids' future. But, you know, I, I agree with Rand. I mean, we, we are part of that small rump group that is resisting this, that is trying to push back. Um, but, unfortunately, we, we probably will have 10 of our Republican members that will join in all 50 Democrats to pass this omnibus. And they all think they're they're being righteous. They all they all think, well, you know, you know, no matter what Kevin McCarthy, McCarthy says, he really doesn't mean it. He really does want us to pass this so he can move on and start governing uh, in in 2023. It's it's always it's, it's the wimpy. No, he doesn't. I'll, no, he I doesn't. Will gladly pay you Kevin McCarthy for hamburger today. Kevin McCarthy does not want this uh, omnibus passed. He wants to start carving up the budget immediately. I mean, I've talked to him. I interviewed him. This past I week, I interviewed Kevin, I interviewed you, I interviewed Rand Paul. You're all saying the same thing. What's so infuriating to me, as look, I've, you know I've worked down there. I spent two times in the White House. I, one time I was OMB deputy, so I know a little bit about these numbers. Um, there is no explanation. F- listen, 41 Republican votes would enforce the PAYGO caps and launch uh, automatic spending cuts of about $150 billion. Now, I know you know this, Aaron Johnson. I'm just reviewing this for our listeners. You know, or you'd have some negotiation, which we're not having. 
There is no negotiation. But the Republican leadership, need I name names, is playing ball with the Democratic leadership to deprive the taxpayers of even a small amount of restraint or depriving the voters of letting their new choice to run the House run the House. They're stopping that. I don't understand it. I don't understand the economics, which you have outlined, and I sure don't understand the politics. What is going on here? I'm reading the Wall Street Journal editorial today. They're blasting this process. You know, I listened to Rand Paul last night or two nights ago. The omnibus will be 3,000 pages. We'll get two hours before they want us to pass it. No one will read it. Now, you've been through this a lot over 12 years. Here we go again. It's like, huh? Really? Republicans campaign on spending restraint and fighting inflation and taxpayer protection, and then this stuff goes on? Wow. I don't get it. Of course, this is the reason why a small group must challenge leadership this yep. time. Yep. Um, but, but, again, this is not my rationale, but um, I'll give you the rationale that we hear inside the conference. First of all, I've heard this statement that, uh, you know, show me a member of Congress that ever lost re-election because they spent too much money. That's probably a pretty good, pretty true statement. I don't agree with it, but that's part of the rationale. Uh, then, then, again, you'll, you'll, also, you'll always get, well, we'll get blamed for shutting down the government. Again, as I was saying earlier, whether we're in the majority or the minority, we'll get blamed. You know, Larry, that's largely true as well. And so, so that is what is driving this process. And, and right now, internally, uh, no matter what public statements, no matter what Kevin McCarthy has told people who have talked to him directly, like you, saying that he does not want this omnibus, inside the Republican conference, there's probably about 10 Republican senators that say he doesn't really believe that. Uh, we know better than Kevin McCarthy. We're going to ignore what he's saying publicly. We're going to do him a favor, and we're going to take this spending, spending fight off of his plate so that he can start as the new speaker uh, with a clean slate, and, and then and then we'll really get uh, fiscal discipline. You know, then we're really going to govern the way we promised our voters. But just this one last time here, we're going to have the spending blowout. You know, the, the other thing, the other rationale is, you know, this is a huge victory for us because we finally broke that parity between uh, military spending when Republicans want to strengthen the national defense. We always have to have dollar for dollar at least of domestic spending. And so, so they're, they're really taking credit for the fact that they've broken that parity. The, the, the problem with that is Democrats have been pigs at the trough for the last two years. Mm. They've passed trillions of dollars of additional domestic spending. They're satiated. Mm. So they're willing to give uh, Republicans the, the crumbs of a little, little extra military spending without demanding dollar for dollar. And, and like this is some great victory. So, I'm, again, I'm just give, I don't agree with this rationale. But that's the rationale that's going on inside the conference. That's what's going on inside the heads of Republican senators. They will probably vote for this next week so we can just move on. And, again, going back to uh, the rationale, show show me a member of Congress that ever lost because they spent too much money. Well, I think there are examples. I don't – I mean, look, the public – inflation was public enemy number one in this election. The question that has to be asked – is with respect to Republicans running against an incumbent Democrat, for example, uh, does that Republican have credibility? See, these things, you and I have talked about this continuously during the election year that's just passed. 
all Republicans voted against the March 21 spending bill. Okay, so that was good. But then came the infrastructure bill, and then Republicans were against uh, Build Back Better. But then came all, right, all Republicans voted against the inflation reduction bill. But as I said, they voted for the infrastructure bill, they voted for the chips bill, and they voted for a lot of smaller bills. In other words, the GOP hands are not clean here. Uh, I remember Kim Strassel, the Wall Street Journal, wrote a column about this. I said this repeatedly on my TV show and here on radio, and I'm saying it again. It's like nobody – people went with the incumbent because at least it's the devil you know. But here's another point, Senator Johnson. Um, you can have a battle over a government shutdown, which I think is – these aren't government shutdowns. Nothing gets shut down. Nothing of, of essence gets shut down, not Social Security, not Medicare. But what do you get for it? You might get – Reagan shut down the government repeatedly and won big battles with Tip O'Neill – over defense spending. We had government shutdowns during the Trump years, and we won concessions. I mean, it depends. A shutdown, uh, which doesn't hurt anybody, really, um, you, what a, you might get something great for it. Hell, you might even get a vote on, you might even get a vote on Pago. Senator Johnson, stick with me. I got to take a break. Producers are yelling at me. Uh, I'm too overheated anyway. Uh, please give us another segment, would you please? I want to talk some more about these numbers as well as the government shutdown argument. Folks, we are talking to Senator Ron Johnson, a genuine conservative, a genuine fiscal conservative, a genuine free market conservative, who, uh, despite the critics, has won his third term as a U.S. senator from the state of Wisconsin. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back with Mr. Johnson. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, and we're talking about this travesty of the omnibus spending bill. Senator Johnson, you were talking numbers before. We have a pretty sophisticated audience here, I think, um, about $6.3 trillion in 22, up almost $2 trillion from the uh, pre-COVID year 2019. Now, uh, I've called around not only senators who are friends of mine, but also uh, senior Senate staff, some of whom work for me. Nobody knows what the top line uh, number is going to be on spending. They're saying it could be $1.7 trillion, but they're also saying it could be a couple of hundred billion dollars above that. And there's also a battle about, about um, child kitty tax credits, child tax credits, which would be more refundable credits like government mailing out government checks with no work requirements. In other words, where do you think these numbers are going to come out? Because I see this, they're building in COVID stuff into the permanent baseline and they're going to add on to that as well. So nobody really does know. Now, part of our problem here, Larry, and I knew this would happen when we switched denominations from billions, you know, hundreds of billions, which (laughs) sounded like a lot. Trillions, I knew we were going to be in big trouble, and we are, because now the China bill, that was just a quarter of a trillion dollars. Mm. You know, we're talking about 1.7 versus 1.9 trillion. It's just since that, no, it's another $200 billion. Mm. And of course, another one of the rationales, by the way, on um, part of the big spenders is we're, we're only dealing with uh, less than 30% of the budget here. You know, you got 73% uh, of the 2022 budget was mandatory spending. So we can't touch that. But, but here's something I pointed out with my chart that I presented to everybody this week. 
and this surprised me. I do not have an answer for this. Of the roughly $6.4 trillion in additional spending over three years, over the $4.4 trillion baseline, and you got to follow me. Mm-hmm. So we spent another $6.4 trillion over what we would spend if we just kept spending $4.4 trillion. I would have expected most of that as COVID relief is being discretionary, right? Kind of one-time spending for a crisis and then go away. Only a trillion went into discretionary. 5.4 went into mandatory. I do not have an answer on what happened there. How much of that is going to go away? Or did we, did we literally, in passing all that COVID relief, did we lock some of that in as permanent mandatory spending. Mm-hmm. I think some will probably drop away. I fear a lot will just continue. But again, that's another that's another one of those rationales is uh, it's, you know, it's mandatory is off the table. We're not even talking about that. That's that's our big problem. That's what's driving you know the, the mortgage of our children's future. But let me also tell you a story about my campaign. If you remember uh, with the burn pit legislation, a big chunk of that, uh, one of the con- uh, contentious points was Democrats took $400 billion of VA benefit spending out of discretionary, put into mandatory. We, we are, were opposed to that because we knew that would just open up a hole for more, more spending. Well, one of the comments I made prior to the, my reelection was, you know, we, sh- we should end this distinction. All spending should be on budget, so we're forced to look at all of it. Now, that, so how that was taken, though, is, oh, Standard Johnson wants to put Social Security on the chopping block. He wants to end it. He wants to cut Social Security. No. I want to try and save it, but this is what's happening. By having 73% of the budget mandatory, off the table, nobody even looks at it. That is that is what's driving it. But it's also allowing for blowout spending on the discretionary side, going from about $1.3 trillion to maybe as high as $1.9 just four years later. This is out of control. It's so grossly dysfunctional. drives me nuts, but that's our problem. We don't know. <clears throat> We don't know what the top line number is going to be in the Senate. No, we don't know that. I mean, to me, that's incredible. Uh, 1.7, 1.9. There's a lot of things we don't know. We don't know about the uh, child tax credits. We don't know about um, the depreciation schedule for R&D uh, tax credits, which actually would boost investment and do something for economic growth. They never, Senator Johnson, we don't, what's happening with the so-called mansion permitting? Not that it was such a great bill, but, you know, we don't, that, whatever happened to that? Remember, he, he voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, fraudulently called, because Chuck Schumer was going to give him uh, permitting? What happened to the, I mean, we should have H.R. 1, which McCarthy loves. I've talked to him three or four times about it. Open the spigots for oil and gas production, which is principally permanent. Whatever happened to Manchin's permitting bill? Well, Manchin got hosed by his own side. But, you know, what we really don't know, Larry, <laughs> right. is we don't know the number for over 70% of our budget, the mandatory. We oh. don't know that. We, we, we have no clue. And, again, understand, we're almost three months into this fiscal year. I mean, one of the things that Rick Scott and I talk about coming from the business world, if, if you change this chart of mine where, where we're talking about, you know, Six trillion dollars just turned into millions, and you're you're taking a look at that as, as like a division of a business. I mean, you, you'd be crawling all over a business manager. What, what do you mean you want another 1.6 million dollars? I mean, justify that to me. Mm. But we're, we're, again, we don't even know the, the overall macro numbers, must much less justify it to the American public. So, 
again, I'm going to be relentless at talking numbers, mm. uh, getting to the bottom of this stuff, figuring out, okay, where, why did mandatory spending increase by $5.4 trillion cumulatively over three years? What is pulling off here? And hopefully the public will start paying attention. Hopefully we can stop this omnibus. Hopefully we can put pressure on you know, enough Republican senators so that we don't have the 10 to join with 50 Democrats. That's been happening time and time again, uh, disputing certainly our supporters. It's not helpful. And I would point out to my Republican colleagues, uh, spending our way into the majority has not worked the last two elections. No, you bet. Um, you're going to have a meeting, I would guess. Does the Republican Policy Committee still have its lunch meeting on Tuesday? You're going to have it this coming Tuesday? And is that going to oh. be where this swing out occurs? I mean, is people going to talk about give me 41 votes to impose the uh, caps or give me, you know, a majority in the conference to um, just have a short term CR instead of betraying the House? Is this stuff going to come up Tuesday at the lunch? I, I hope so. But it's been coming up last week. I mean, I, I led an effort to have call a conference meeting. Uh, first of all, talk about overall, you know, what, what is our conference about? Mission statement, principles, that type of thing. But I, that's where I, I produced this chart that I've been handing out to the press, you know, showing exactly, you know, what the numbers are. Again, I think a lot of my colleagues were shocked. They didn't know this either. Can you get, no, again, n- none of us know this. Can Alexa or somebody send me that, email me that? I have not seen that chart. And I'll, I'll send it to you as soon as we're and, off the show. I'm a numbers guy, so I'll I'll figure it out. But I'm just okay. So what happened last Tuesday at the luncheon? Did anybody bring this stuff up? I presume they did. No, no, we've been hammering on it. But again, I I think the smugness of leadership. Yeah. Pay no attention to what what McCarthy's really saying. What he really believes is, you know, Senate, bail me out here, pass this omnibus so I can I can you know get religion in the new Congress. That is not what he believes. That is not what he believes, and I have it on tape. I mean, oh, I several times. That is not what he believes. That is not what Scalise believes. That is not what any of them believe. How can they put words in their mouth like that? You know, you. So uh, I had Marsha Blackburn on last night. She was the same way as you are, same way as Rand Paul. Cruz is the same. I mean, there's about uh, 20 of you that are doing the Lord's work. But the leadership is blocking good policy and good politics. I mean, if the voters elect the Republican House, Senator Johnson, they ought to let the Republican House do their business. And by the way, I think it's good politics. I don't, I don't think the public really wants inflationary spending. I just don't believe that. I don't believe it. Well, you know, and, and Republicans, let's face it, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, lot of spending under Republicans. Yes, there uh, has. That certainly has not helped inflation. And they, they agreed to this. Uh, they're going to get more and more uh, blame for the inflation is just crushing people. I mean, yeah. it's just crushing people. A dollar you held to start the Biden administration is worth less than 88 cents. Mm-hmm. That is crushing seniors and quite honestly, crushing defense spending. Mm-hmm. So if they're crowing about $858 billion in defense spending. It's only worth $750 billion at the start of the Biden administration. It's killing us. Senator Ron Johnson, thank you, sir. Thank you for your analysis. Thank you for your honesty. Thanks for getting reelected. We will talk very, very soon. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to John Carney of Breitbart about the Fed. We'll get into this spending issue, too. 
and a few other things. Please stick around. Lots more to do. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Please, during the week, join us on the Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Can't make it at 4. Text your favorite nine-year-old who will uh, teach you how to DVR the show, and you'll never miss a thing. Right here, you can live stream us on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. Run all across the country, throughout the world, and the solar system. And we bring in my great friend John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, which people should read. Anybody interested in the economy should read this thing, Breitbart Business Digest. It's very good. John, thank you for coming on. Just um, I want to talk to you about a whole bunch of things, but I just had Ron Johnson on, Senator Johnson. You know, we had Rand Paul on uh, who talked about how the Republicans have given up the power of the purse and they've emasculated themselves on this omnibus spending bill, which should be defeated. And what they're doing is they're closing out Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans from rewriting the budget and the budget priorities, you know, including – I mean, the 87,000 IRS agents for $80 billion, uh, border money, you know, for we need new guards, we need new, I mean, they're going to lift the, what, Title 42, whatever that thing's called. Uh, that's going to be, I think that ends this week, and people are streaming across the border. Plus, uh, the budget caps, nobody, you need 41 senators to stop uh, waiving the budget caps should get $150 billion of spending cuts, automatic spending cuts. That's something. You need that. Uh, Ron Johnson, Marsha Blackburn, Ted Cruz, Ron Paul, they're all in you know full revolt. I've never seen anything like it, actually, John. I mean, I thought the mission here for the Republicans was, was to cut spending. I thought they campaigned on inflationary spending cuts. What happened? I think that you're absolutely right. This is a tremendous mistake that's being made by the leadership of uh, of the Senate in particular. So let's just call it what it is. Mitch McConnell yep. uh, it, on the Republican side has is basically abdicating the powers that uh, the U.S. that the U.S. voting population tried to give to the Republicans. They wanted to put look. The Republicans didn't do a great job. They didn't win a majority in the Senate, but Americans very clearly voted for a break on runaway Democrat spending, and it looks like they're not going to get it. Uh, and this budget process that they're putting in place is is one. It's going to continue to fuel inflation. That means higher interest rates next year. They're running contrary to what the Fed is trying to accomplish. Mm. And as you said, look, the, the border stuff is insane. We have all these new climate banks that are springing up. We don't even know how these climate change banks all throughout the government are going to operate. But I, what I do know is they're going to encourage more spending because that's that's the entire purpose of them. That will be inflationary as well. The Republicans – at the very least, even if they can't stop some of this stuff because they don't have enough votes, shouldn't be voting for it. The leadership shouldn't be cooperating with it, and they should be campaigning against it and saying to people, let's prepare for the next election and say, look, we think this is all terrible. 
we're going to do our best to stop it. When we have more votes, we promise you we will stop it. If they go along with this stuff, I don't see why anybody should trust them to fight it when they get the majority. And Ron Paul said they're emasculating themselves. He's right. They're emasculating themselves. By the way, I forgot about the climate banks. You're abs- God knows what that's going to be. That comes from the Inflation Reduction Act. There's little little climate banks springing up in all these federal agencies. Nobody knows what they're going to spend. It's completely open-ended. Right. The purpose is to create what's basically off-balance sheet, uh, non-budgetary spending, because you've authorized these banks. We all know how banks operate. they, They have a little bit of capital and then basically invent more money. These are going to be fueling spending for the Democratic climate change priorities, and that is also going to drive inflation. Boy, I'll tell you, what what a story this is. I mean, this is just really something. Direct repudiation of the Republican House. What, what is it about the Republican Party? Anyway, John Carney, um, give us a read on the Fed. So they raised 50 basis points to uh, 4.5% top of the target range. Um, lots and lots of people are saying the Fed is now into overkill. The yield curve is inverted, yes. Uh, I get that, and the leading indicators looking down. We had some bad numbers this week. Retail sales down. uh, Factory manufacturing is down. Employment is still holding up. But uh, I guess my question is, is the the Fed into overkill now? Uh, How do you read this uh, story? They too harsh? I mean, what's, what's your take on this? I don't think they are into overkill yet. It is super interesting to me. You know, the, one of the oldest phrases on Wall Street is you can't fight the Fed, but the market is definitely fighting the Fed. Yeah. Uh, the Fed says, you know, in their in their forecasts, they say we're going to be at five, basically five and a quarter uh, at the end of next year. So they still have a ways to go. If you look at things like the Fed funds futures, they say there's no way the Fed's going to be that high, basically predicting the Fed will have to stop short at the beginning of this year or cut in the second half of next year because the economy is deteriorating. I have sympathy with the view that the economy is deteriorating. As you said, look, retail sales, I've been warning for you know two months now that people are misreading the U.S. consumer thinking retail sales were going to be very strong. They are not going to be very strong. We had a lot of the Christmas shopping occur. Once again, this has gone on for two and a half, almost three years now uh, in October. And people see the big sales in October and they say, yes, like, so the the consumer is very strong and then we're going to have big sales in November and December. This happened last year. We saw that actually November sales disappointed. This is, again, what happened this year. Uh, People are shopping earlier. And the, the retailers know this, by the way. If you look at the retail inventory numbers, those are lower than people thought they would be. Why? Because if you're running Walmart or you're running Target, you see what's happening. But weirdly, the Wall Street analysts still haven't processed this change in shopping habits. They'll catch up eventually. But this is why we keep getting disappointing retail numbers at the end of the year. I'm looking at some of these estimates. The Atlanta Fed, so their GDP now is 2.8 for the fourth quarter. Uh, The wage tracker, I guess that's the Atlanta Fed wage tracker is 6.4 wages, wage costs. 
And then uh, your favorite, and I like it too, the median CPI from the Cleveland Fed is 7%. So the Fed's target is 2 They got to get from 7 to 2 They got 6.5% wages, and the economy's growing at close to 3%. Um, we may be setting up for a double-dip recession uh, next year, but right now um, – it's not a bad story. I mean, inflation's too high, and this economy's still growing. Right. So one of the things we're seeing in these numbers, and I think this is very important, and Jerome Powell is on top of this uh, aspect of it, which is that the economy is still growing. The labor market is still very strong. We are seeing a pretty rapid decline now in, the, in goods inflation. Mm that a lot of people thought should have happened earlier this year, but it didn't. We still had a pretty strong clip of goods inflation. That seems to be coming off now, which is a relief, but that's only about one-third of consumption spending. The other two-thirds is services, and that is actually accelerating. That is very, services spending is not supply chain issues. It's not you know ports. It's not, not having enough trucks. It is fundamentally wage inflation. The numbers you were just giving us – tells us that that is not 6% wage inflation is not consistent with a 2% overall inflation. Mm. So we, we, we can bring down inflation in goods, that's happening, but we're not seeing anything that will bring down wages to a level, you know, to a level or, per, you know, the other angle would be raised productivity. Productivity is not going up. Mm. And so what we have is wage inflation that will fuel overall inflation. And Jerome Powell sees this and says, like, look, guys, you – may think that uh, we're going to back off, but we're not going to back off of raises and we're definitely not going to lower until we see signs of the labor market softening. And last week we got 211 jobless claim, 211,000 jobless claims. That's not a soft labor market at all, as you know, Larry. That's actually a very strong mm. market. So net-net is Fed's going to stay tight. They're going to stay tight, and I actually believe that we may see them Unless we get soft labor market numbers between now and the next meeting, which is until the very end of January, beginning of February, I think we're going to see them actually raise where they think rates are going at that next meeting mm-hmm. if the labor market data continues to come in this tight. I would agree. I would agree they're going to stay tight. They probably should stay tight until they get some better results here. All right, John Carney, Breitbart News. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it very much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, uh, the great Andrew McCarthy from National Review, former prosecutor, he's going to tell us who exactly should regulate crypto after this uh, catastrophe of FTX and this uh, stupid kid Sam Bankman-Fried. Andy McCarthy coming up. I'm Kudlow. Stay with us. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to have a little conversation about a particular corrupt jerk, Sam Bankman-Fried, and his phony FTS uh, exchange. We bring in Andy McCarthy. Andrew McCarthy is a former prosecutor for the Southern District of New York. He's a contributing editor of National Review, and he's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. His Latest book is Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy McCarthy, this is like the plot to rig crypto and destroy, I don't know, millions and millions of dollars. Tom Brady's going to have to play 
quarterback for <laughs> 10 more years. He and his wife, whatever his name is, Giselle Munchkin, Bunchkin, I think they lost their entire $600 million fortune. And judging from the way he's been playing the last few weeks, I don't think he can do it. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I only care. I want the Giants to beat the Redskins or whatever they're called on Sunday. But uh, I'm reading your article out today, uh, National View Online. It's a very good, comprehensive article. The question here, I mean, and it is a legitimate question, and I am, I am a free market guy. I'm not big on regulators and regulations, particularly uh, all these uh, Biden people. But what is the best way to deal with this problem? You know, uh, I mean, you make some great points here that, Cryptocurrency is different from these so-called crypto exchanges. Uh, that's a very important point. You're right. The middle, the middleman is where this thing uh, broke down. And um, how does this get resolved? I mean, how do we? Who should? Because here, well, let me just babble one more point. The the um, commodities futures uh, CFTC doesn't know anything about crypto, and the SEC doesn't know anything about crypto. In fact, the SEC spends most of its time on environmental regulations, another subject they don't know anything about, which is wrecking business. So who can do this and, you know, prevent more fraud uh, from the likes of this corrupt kid? Larry, you know, I I think the big thing is that it has to be done deliberately. And I I have to say, um, if if someone were to ask me who should – you know, figure this out. I would say Larry Kudlow, not Andy McCarthy, is the, is more of the uh, uh, has has firmer feet on the ground in this area than I do. My my only point is, um, you know, I haven't made up my mind about crypto. Uh, I know that there's a people who have a lot more depth in it than than I do. Um, some think it's the future. Some think it's think it's a Ponzi scheme. I, my thing is. Twofold. Number one, this is this happened in the context of crypto, the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX um, scheme, but it could have been any asset class. There's nothing about the esoterica of crypto that uh, reads on this particular fact pattern, which is, I, I mean, this probably this is a fraud that goes back to the the Garden of Eden, probably. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's people invest with. A guy, and he diverts the uh, the assets to his own use. I mean, it 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 was crypto in this situation, or at least it, he was raising money on the basis of that. But uh, it, it wasn't particular to crypto, and in many ways, it seems to me that this is like the anti-crypto, in the sense that in cryptocurrencies and the whole idea of uh, the application of blockchain here, you don't give up control of the asset. That's like the whole point Mm -hmm. um and you know to to use this uh exchange that he had um sort of smacks against to me the 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 whole point of of doing this but my thing is it's got to be i don't like the idea of panicked uh regulation and crisis management of these things when it should be deliberate i i completely agree that this ought to be Looked at uh, by people who know this area and regulated in a in a uh, sensible way. What I don't like, uh, and I think I've heard you talk about this in uh, in the last few days, 
where, you know, for example, Gary Gensler at the SEC suddenly decides, you know, we have a, you know, 2000 age uh, set of regulations right. that we want everybody to sign off on, which is going to change the nature of how the stock market works. Yeah. Unelected bureaucrats shouldn't be doing that. Mm. It should, that should be done in a very deliberate way and not in a crisis situation. And you know these guys take situations like this fraud at FTX, and they use it as a pretext for these big regulatory schemes that they've been dreaming up and, and just looking for an opportunity to, to trigger. So my thing is just A, deliberation, and B, let's, let's realize that even though this happens in the context of crypto, um, it, it's just a standard fraud scheme. Right. I, you know, I agree with that. I mean, look, as you, as you point out here, the blockchain technology, blockchains for our listeners like a big ledger, okay? And the blockchain technology has been working. By the way, the blockchain is, is transparent. Very right. important point. We mean, I mean, I looked at this when I was in the government, uh, uh, Mnuchin and Steve Mnuchin and Treasury. We, we all looked at that. It's transparent. I mean, it's not full of drug dealers and stuff like that. Or if it is, you can find out. You don't need... Uh, you don't need this exchange, the FTX. You don't need that. And I think that's an issue here that needs some exploration. Uh, but I would probably opt for an independent crypto regulator. The trouble I have is the Bidens are going to put in somebody uh, who's interested in diversity, equity, and climate change, you know, <laughs> not cryptocurrencies. That's that's my biggest my biggest problem. <laughs> Andrew McCarthy, let me ask you something else. Um, all this money that this kid spent, he and his lieutenants, whether it's FEC uh, money or dark money or whatever money, right. I mean, this is a bribery scheme not to regulate. And I was just interested as your in your background as a prosecutor, uh, should this be clawed back? I mean, what do we do with this issue now? Most of it went to Democrats, but not all of it. Republicans are, you know, they're involved in this too. Um, what do you? How do you read this? Because I mean, I just see this. You know, they took the money, they used it to buy whatever fancy houses and and uh, and I don't know venture capital deals, but they also used it to bribe politicians not to regulate them in the Bahamas. Yeah, and I I think the Standard way of dealing with this, and again, this goes to what's being standard fraud, right? I mean, you can quantify uh, what what the swindle uh, encompassed, and you know, you can trace where the money went. Take some work, but they can figure that out. The thing is, it's like every one of these other things, Larry. When when the, when the assets go poof, then it always comes down to whoever the assets were transferred to. Is there indication that they knew or should have known that the scam was on? Mm. Uh, and that's the re- that's the way that they that the theory under which they try to claw this back. And it's also the reason this litigation takes years and years. I, I think the you know some of the Bernie Madoff people are still trying to claw back assets from not the Madoff family necessarily, but like everybody who was kind of at the top of the pyramid. Mm. Uh, of the scheme. So 
what what tends to happen with these things is the litigation goes on for a long time. A lot of it is private litigation. You know, in the um, in the indictment, there's a forfeiture count. In the SEC complaint, there's a forfeiture count. In the um, FTC, um, uh, the CFTC complaint, there's a, a forfeiture count. So the government is applying, you know, the the mechanisms that exist under the law and the regulations to to try to get parts of it back. But history tells us that most of this is going to be done by private litigation, and it's probably going to be very unsatisfying. And I don't know if Tom Brady can play another 10 years, but we better hope maybe Giselle can can model for another 10 years. Yeah, she's got a better uh, shot at it than he does. Yeah. But, but Andrew, um, let me just ask you, um, uh, we got a hard out. I was going to ask you about the Forfeiture Act and the politicians. All right, I got to get out. Annie McCarthy, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We'll see whether they have to claw back all this money that was stolen. We'll take a quick break, folks. Come back and talk to Tom Phillipson. Um, Why are we relying on the Saudis for our oil? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to bring in uh, Thomas Phillipson. Tomas Phillipson is the former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. He's now professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. Tomas, thank you. So I want to talk for a few moments about your article in the Wall Street Journal. Biden turns the U.S. into a shadow member of OPEC, uh, a government cartel, and that every step he takes, Biden, to stop fracking and permitting and pipelining strengthens the cartel and keeps prices higher than they would ordinarily be. I believe that's what your point is, but you tell us. Yeah, uh, good to be with you, Larry. Uh, So cartels are obviously illegal in the private sector. We have antitrust laws that prevent them, but they are permitted between governments, uh, ironically enough. And in fact, OECD is running a trying to run a price cartel led by our Treasury Department of having a corporate tax floors uh, so that companies or uh, countries, I should say, don't compete with each other in mm-hmm. terms of uh, corporate tax competition. OPEC is the most famous government cartel, and it's important to understand. So the incentives of a cartel, how it works, which is <clears throat> you try to pull down supply to keep prices high. When demand slopes downwards, the only way to get up prices is to have less of it. And there's, But there's an inherent incentive for cartel members to cheat if other people stick to the script. So if other countries stick to their supply cuts, it's to the benefit of a given country to sell more at the higher prices, but thereby thereby eroding the higher prices. So there's a huge instability of a cartel. So the cartel likes people to commit to supply cuts, and that's exactly what Biden has done for the U.S. He's committed to supply cuts with legislation and regulation, and also in the financial sector by basically trying to enforce regulations that limit financing 
of fossil fuel power oil companies. And it's that commitment to regulation and legislation that's so valuable to OPEC because traditionally U.S. would step in. They would constrain, they could, would constrain the cartel because if the cartel went in and cut supply, U.S. could actually fill it and therefore they constrained the higher prices of OPEC. But now we're in a situation where the U.S. is basically committing not to do so, which is great news for OPEC, bad news for, for um, consumers, particularly poor ones. So basically, uh, you want to bring back the Trump policies, uh, which were deregulatory policies, which were policies that promoted the expansion of the supply of oil and offset OPEC. I mean, every time I, I can recall national security issues, Tomas, I mean, this is kind of interesting. You know, uh, Iran uh, bombing Saudi Arabia, Iran and Yemen, you know, people were worried about sanctions in Iran uh, or anything that would cause prices to be driven up because of what these Middle Eastern producers or OPEC members would do. But I used to argue in these uh, national security meetings that we shouldn't worry about that because we have so much supply. Essentially, the world was awash with oil, and oil was averaging about $50 a barrel, and frankly, it didn't matter what OPEC did. Now, all of a sudden, right. So your point is because Biden's climate change extremism has curtailed production – uh, we are playing along, so we are a shadow member. We are bolstering OPEC's power, not stopping it. Exactly, and then the, the key word is commitment by regulation and legislation. They can count on us not being in there and trying to counteract what they're doing when they're raising prices through their cartel because we're committed. It's going to take a lot of work to uncommit that legislation and regulation, mm. So they can count on us not responding to what they're doing by basically being a, you know, a pivotal producer in the world market. Yeah, you know, it's a, a very interesting and vexing subject. I mean, here's Biden going, you know, hand in hand, hat in hand to the Saudis produce more. Lately, the Venezuelans produce more. Uh, they're playing footsie with Iran, Tomas, right? You know, for a, a nuclear deal that would be a terrible mistake in foreign policy terms. All we have to do is open the spigots here. Why is that so yeah. hard to understand? <laughs> well, I huh? mean, they open the spigots. They... Turn the turn the dials, for heaven's sakes. Why is that so hard? <laughs> well, I mean, they will obviously argue that this is in and for the benefit of reducing global warming, and there's. There's several problems with that. One is U.S. energy is obviously cleaner than the the rest of the world's energy. So you're actually many times increasing global warming by substituting uh, away from U.S. energy. The second one is it should be a complete focus on innovation into green energy, if you want, as opposed to prevention using existing technologies. So we're substituting into more costly green energy away from cheaper fossil fuels. If fossil fuels were more expensive, they would be abandoned by the market a long time ago. The problem is that, you know, green energy is more expensive. But we're pushing people, which is really hurting the poor. It's a, it's a very regressive agenda, to be honest. Mm. 
because the poor are the ones that are spending a larger share of their budget on energy compared to rich folks. There's a very regressive agenda of not focusing on innovation. Once this innovation, I mean, you know, we're, we're getting great news on fusion this week, right? But, you know, that's going to take decades. But that's the kind of innovation that's going to get us out of it. It's not substituting to more costly energies. And this stupid kind of discussion of Biden that we're creating green new jobs is like arguing if we had government subsidies for typewriters, we had with all these new typewriter <laughs> jobs replacing computers, it would be great. Uh, and so I think it's completely under, misunderstanding, you know, that, that the, the, the key to this is innovation. It's not replacement of cheap energy for costly energy. Do you still have your typewriter? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it. I don't yeah, have it. I don't have it either. I had an, I had an, I had what did I have? Was it called Olympic or Olympia? I had one, and I wasn't any, I wasn't any good at it. Anyway, that's a great, I love that typewriter analysis. You know, we were talking earlier uh, with John Carney at Breitbart about um, uh, these climate banks, Tomas. They're set up in the Inflation Reduction Act, fraudulently named. They set up these climate banks. There's a bunch of them. And, um, you know, they're going to allocate money. God knows how much money. Um, there's about $30 billion that maybe would be the capital, and then they'd make loans to various projects. And then we learned this week, Tomas, about all this energy department subsidies to battery companies. The trouble is the battery companies are owned by the Chinese, <laughs> Okay. Of course. What, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I thought we were in favor of onshoring. So we we've got climate banks with unlimited budgets, and we've got battery subsidies for Chinese. I don't get this. This doesn't sound right to me. But you're the distinguished former CEA chair. Tell me, <laughs> tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, the, the whole issue is this is very very similar to COVID. It turns out, in my views, because in, for COVID. What we did, we're trying to prevent disease uh, by having people locked up or, you know, reducing face-to-face activity, which is very costly. It was a lot of foregone economic activity from doing so. What saved the day for COVID was innovation, Mm. essentially, Mm. in terms of the vaccines and treatments. (laughs) And it's going to be the similar story for for green energy. It's not going to be that we're going to substitute towards more costly green energy. That's not going to be the solution, especially for the poor. It's going to hurt the poor a lot more than it hurts the rich. And it's going to be that we have new innovation where we basically bring down, as soon as we bring down and you know renewable energy prices below fossil fuels it will not we will we won't need governments to kind of mandate anything right the market is going to go there if it's cheaper and that's the innovation that's needed and it's very little focus on that compared to substitution Mm -hmm. away from you know uh cheap to cost energy and your other point we're running out of time but tomas your other point uh fossils are cheaper than the wind farms or the solar that that's that's a key reason why there's only three or four or five percent uh of these other alternative renewables so called 
It's just too damn expensive. Is that that's your point? Well, that's a, that's a key reason we have global warming. If it was more expensive, we wouldn't need fossil fuel, right? The market would just go to greener energy automatically, and we wouldn't have the the problem to start with. The whole issue is that the cost of fossil fuel is cheaper, and but the green energy costs are coming down over time. They're not coming down as quick as we want them, but they will come down below fossil fuels. Once that happens, the market is going to go there. You don't need any government subsidies mm. to go there then. All right. You got it. Tomas Phillips in the University of Chicago, uh, former head of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration. Thank you, Tomas. Uh, I'm Cutlow. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about innovation, fusion versus fusion versus something or other, fusion versus fission. Mark Mills will tell us about it from the Manhattan Institute. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back. Excuse me. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. So Tomas Philipson was talking about innovation and technological breakthroughs to solve the issues of uh, climate change and climate warming. And sure enough, this week we had, this past week, we had an announcement from the very famous Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory out in California that um, made some headway in something called fusion. Fusion, uh, well, I'm going to let Mark Mills from the Manhattan <laughs> Institute, he's going to describe this. I don't I don't know. I, I don't understand anything about this stuff. Uh, this is like, yeah. it's, um, what are we doing? F- uh, nuclear reaction, when we split the atom, it's yeah. called what? It's fission. 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 Yeah. And you split big atoms. Uranium is heavy like lead. Right. It's big and you can split it relatively easily. Right. And it releases that famous... A conversion of matter to energy, the E equals MC squared, we, we've all heard so much about, if, even if we don't understand it. Right. just means it's a crazy big number, millions of times more energy per, per, per pound of material than combustion or wind or solar, just incredibly more energetic. It's great stuff. And uh, then So I knew that. Fusion, Wait, I knew fusion. that. I knew that. Yeah, you knew that. <laughs> I knew that. No. E equals now, MC fusion. squared. Yeah. Now, yeah, fusion yeah. is fusion. what? So that's what stars do uh, the center of a star. It's kind of a big thing, the star. They're huge. It's not the sun. Under incredible pressure and high temperature, you can you push the hydrogen atoms together, makes them bind. That also results in an incredible release of energy. It's the mm. inverse. You're making a bigger atom out of a small, small one, mm. but it also is an, it's an atomic phenomenon. Incredible. We've been trying to uh, replicate fusion ever since... Uh, we understood what fusion was, how we knew how stars worked. It's really remarkable. You know, th- this uh, announcement deserves a lot of credit for being an incredible breakthrough in science. They got to ignition. You know, when you turn your car on, you get ignition. Um, but to, to use a simplistic analogy, if you got a car engine to have ignition, but you didn't have the rest of the engine. I mean, if you just get combustion ignition, but no engine, no wheels, no steering wheel, no car you don't have a vehicle. I mean, we're, this is this is a, a big big step in science. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't tell you anything particularly useful about how soon we'll have practical fusion. Although, with maybe one caveat, 
the joke in the, in the physics community has for 50 years been fusion is always 50 years away. Mm, right. But with this discovery, it might actually be only 50 years away. Finally, we actually have, a, we, may, we huh. may now finally have the roadmap. It might be close, which well, is 50 years. Well, when you were talking about having an ignition in the car, you turn the ignition on and nothing happens. Well, that's what the Bidens are doing, right? Because they won't let ga- they won't let you have gasoline in the car. So you turn on the ignition and nothing happens. Now, the point here is I, that was a joke. Just kidding. Know, Having some fun because I, I know you will. But fusion is a renewable, okay, right? Fusion is not fossil. It's a fabulous yeah. innovation. But you're saying it, I mean, uh, the press reports were like decades away. Uh, you're saying it could be, you know, 50 years away. Or is that, yeah. you know, I don't want to be optimism or pessimist. I don't understand anything about this. I'm just asking you, how soon can this be done practically and commercially? Well, it's probably more than decades away. Only You just need to know two things that are sort of uh, useful fact points. And there's in some of the press coverage. It's usually buried. The uh, amount of energy taken from the grid to produce the fusion energy is the key thing. You, wanna, you want more energy coming out than you put in. That's called energy production, <laughs> not energy consumption. Mm-hmm. And it's about 200 to 300 times more energy taken from the grid to produce a unit of energy from fusion at that breakthrough. So we're, we're not close in that sense. To have a useful energy-producing machine, the stuff you put in, the energy and materials, you have to get 100 times more out. Not a hundred times less. Oh, right. That, that's where right. we are. We ignition was a physics breakthrough, not a practical breakthrough. The other thing is the fuel pellets. I mean, you know, gasoline is a fuel. Uh, the solar photovoltaic cell is sort of, in a sense, a fuel. You know, costs money to make. The fuel pellet to do the fusion reaction. Each pellet costs about a million dollars to be handcrafted, hmm. and they can sort of light one up sort of once a day. You're going to have to light ten a second up to make a power plant and mm-hmm. figure out how to make millions of those pellets for, you know, dollars, not millions of dollars. And that I think we'll, we'll conquer that problem, but it, it might take, you know, 30 to 50 years. It's going, it's going to take time. But you have to get it into some kind of energy grid. Well, that right? detail. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, just, you're, you're saying here in this New York post article, I think it was New York post, each unit of laser energy put into the fuel pellet, gobbled 200 units of grid energy. Yeah. A lot of work needs to be done. So you got to somehow get it into the grid, which then would promote the electricity uh, you know, to power whatever, the economy. Well, you could, you know, you make heat. Basically, the fusion reactor would make heat, just like we burn fuel to make heat or split atoms to make heat, and you make electricity from the heat by, you know, boiling water, spinning turbines. So that, that part isn't the hard part. The hard part is you have to, you have to produce more, more energy than you consume. And we aren't there with fusion. We're not even close to mm-hmm. there with fusion. It's, you know, there's, and, of course, electricity. The important thing here, and this is some kind of magical breakthrough, it's important, again, in science, but about a quarter of the world's energy is used in electrical form. So three-quarters of the rest is not electricity. So if we, if we had a magic way to make electricity, that be it's meaningful. I mean, but it doesn't change everything. Mm. In fact, the way to change everything, if you want more carbon-free electricity, is to promote today, now, 
uh, many more conventional nuclear power plants that we already know how to build. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not very popular with most places. It's starting to become more popular slowly, but it's uh, you know forty. We've had forty years of hysterical anti-nuclear opposition. Uh, so the things that we know how to use, we oppose. The things we don't know how to build, we support. It's kind of yeah. kind of infantile. Well, the base energy load. I mean, I've heard this from a lot of people. Rick Perry has said this. Dan Briette has said this. You know, people worked in the energy department. Steve Conan. I mean, the the base energy, Mark Mills, is got to be natural gas and nuclear, right? I'm, sure. Isn't that yeah. those are the for, the, for electricity? Clean, yeah. For transportation, oil. Clean burning. Oil. Yeah. Oh, well, that's right. So transportation. Uh, that's still going to be stuck on oil, right? Where else a we long, got? Long time. Well, the Bidens are doing a great job. They want to stop all that. <laughs> no, no wanna, well, yeah, sure. Well, Newsom, as, you, as we've talked about before, Governor Newsom is, it has joined a, a bunch of other states and countries banning this, the purchase and sale of internal combustion engines mm-hmm. uh, a mere decade from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the on the on the belief that electric cars can uh, eliminate uh, oil use and are practical, I mean, you know, electric cars are nice, but the reality is where we're sitting today is uh, about one percent of the world's uh, transportation is done with mm-hmm. electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. So ninety nine percent of the world still using engines that burn fuel. Even the most optimistic forecasts will have something like sixty to seventy percent of the world's transportation burning oil, and then you've got the whole problem of the oil that gets burned to make the batteries to make the electric vehicles, right? which is a big number, a huge number. Well, that's the thing. I mean, so Newsom wants to end the uh, combustion engine and gasoline-powered cars, but even if you own an electric vehicle right now, he's telling you you can't recharge it because he doesn't have mm-hmm. enough electricity because he won't let anybody um, – you know, mine for natural gas. Yeah, that's true. Really? I mean, isn't that his dilemma? I mean, I know Gavin, I know Gavin Newsom, but these are very extreme. I mean, these are extremely extreme ideas of his. Well, well, they are. And and we we do know that he's not stupid. I met him once. He's a smart guy. guy. I totally agree with you. And I was, when I met him, I I found him this when he was governor, the governor was rather mayor of mayor. Uh, he was charming, charming. smart, right. engaging. I mean, he, he'll he be a formidable candidate without any question. Couldn't agree but, more, well, Mark, by the way, personally, on a personal level. Oh, he will. He, but he, I couldn't gonna, agree with you more. He's a good guy. He, I think he is. He just I, has I, crazy I, ideas now. Well, you know, it may, maybe he'll be like Bill Clinton and change and move to center. Who knows? But here's what we do know is that he was clearly told behind closed doors that the policies he's pushing will lead to blackouts in California. That's the only explanation mm. for him signing legislation to keep their nuclear plant alive and actually sign legislation to pay to keep it alive and running because the the push to more solar and wind on California's grids, even as they add more electricity-consuming cars, and they're leading, quote-unquote, the country in that, they're, they're heading off a cliff, and he was told that. And so he, to his credit, he changed his mind. Mm-hmm. And he also authorized last year, quietly, the construction, emergency, emergency construction of, to your point, natural gas-fired combustion turbines to, in order to keep the grid lit. So right. good for him. Well, good for him. Right. Maybe reality will hold. Maybe. All right. 
So fusion and fission, we got a ways to go yet for this fusion stuff. Mark Mills, as always, I actually understood this, at least for the moment. I may forget it later this afternoon, but I got it. Mark Mills, nobody better. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We are going to take a break, and on the other side of the break, as we always do, we're going to do some stock market work. It was kind of an ugly week for stocks. We got a couple of sharpshooting experts that are going to help pilot us. I'm Cudlow. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to bring in uh, Thomas Phillipson. Thomas Phillipson is the former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. He's now professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. Thomas, thank you. So I want to talk for a few moments about your article in the Wall Street Journal. Biden turns the U.S. into a shadow member of OPEC. Uh, a government cartel, and that every step he takes, Biden, to stop fracking and permitting and pipelining strengthens the cartel and keeps prices higher than they would ordinarily be. I believe that's what your point is, but you tell us. Yeah, uh, good to be with you, Larry. Uh, So cartels, are obviously illegal in the private sector. We have antitrust laws that prevent them, but they are permitted between governments, uh, ironically enough. Uh, in fact, OECD is running a, trying to run a price cartel led by our Treasury Department of having a corporate tax force uh, so that companies or uh, countries, I should say, don't compete with each other in mm-hmm. terms of uh, corporate tax competition. OPEC is the most famous government cartel, and it's important to understand sort of the incentives of a cartel, how it works, which is <clears throat> you try to hold down supply to keep prices high. When demand slows downwards, the only way to get up prices is to have less of it. And there's, But there's an inherent incentive for cartel members to cheat if other people stick to the script. So if other countries stick to their supply cuts, it's to the benefit of a given country to sell more at the higher prices, but thereby thereby eroding the higher prices. So there's a huge instability of a cartel. So the cartel likes people to commit to supply cuts, and that's exactly what Biden has done for the U.S., He's committed to supply cuts with legislation and regulation and also in the financial sector by basically trying to enforce regulations that limit financing of fossil fuel power oil companies. And it's that commitment to regulation and legislation that's so valuable to OPEC because traditionally U.S. would step in. They would constrain, they would constrain the cartel because if the cartel went in and cut supply, U.S. could actually fill it, and therefore they constrained the higher prices of OPEC. But now we're in a situation where the U.S. is basically committing not to do so, which is great news for OPEC, bad news for for um, consumers, particularly poor ones. So basically, uh, you want to bring back the Trump policies, uh which were deregulatory policies, which were policies that promoted the expansion of the supply of oil, 
and offset OPEC. I mean, every time I, I can recall national security issues, Tomas, I mean, this is kind of interesting. You know, uh, Iran uh, bombing Saudi Arabia, Iran and Yemen, you know, people were worried about sanctions in Iran uh, or anything that would cause prices to be driven up because of what these Middle Eastern producers or OPEC members would do. But I used to argue in these uh, national security meetings that we shouldn't worry about that because we have so much supply. Essentially, the world was awash with oil, and oil was averaging about $50 a barrel, and frankly, it didn't matter what OPEC did. Now, all of a sudden, right. So your point is because Biden's climate change extremism has curtailed production, uh, we are playing along. So we are a shadow member. We are bolstering OPEC's power, not stopping it. Exactly. And then the, the key word is commitment by regulation and legislation. They can count on us not being in there and trying to counteract what they're doing when they're raising prices through their cartel because we're committed. It's going to take a lot of work to uncommit that legislation and regulation mm. so they can count on us not responding to what they're doing by basically being a you know a pivotal producer in the world market. Yeah, you know, it's a, a very interesting and vexing subject. I mean, here's Biden going, you know, hand in hand, hat in hand to the Saudis produce more. Lately, the Venezuelans produce more. Uh, they're playing footsie with Iran, Tomas, right? You know, for a, a nuclear deal that would be a terrible mistake in foreign policy terms. All we have to do is open the spigots here. Why is that so yeah. hard? To understand, well, I mean, they huh? open the spigots, they, turn the turn the dials, for heaven's sakes. Why is that so I hard? <laughs> well, I mean, they will obviously argue that this is in for the benefit of reducing global warming, and there's there's several problems with that. One is U.S. energy is obviously cleaner than the, <laughs> than the rest of the world's energy, so you're actually many times increasing global warming by substituting. Uh, away from U.S. energy. The second one is it should be a complete focus on innovation into green energy, if you want, as opposed to prevention using existing technologies. So we're substituting into more costly green energy away from cheaper fossil fuels. If fossil fuels were more expensive, they would be abandoned by the market long time ago. The problem is that, you know, green energy is more expensive, but we're pushing people, which is really hurting the poor. It's a, it's a very regressive agenda, to be honest, because mm. the poor are the ones that are spending a larger share of their budget on energy compared to rich folks. So it's a very regressive agenda of not focusing on innovation. Once this innovation, I mean, you know, we're, we're getting great news on fusion this week, right? But, you know, that's going to take decades. But that's the kind of innovation that's going to get us out of it. It's not substituting to more costly energies. And this stupid kind of discussion of Biden that we're creating green new jobs is like arguing if we had government subsidies for typewriters, we had with all these new typewriter <laughs> jobs for replacing computers, it would be great. Uh, and so I think it's completely under, misunderstanding, you 
you know, that, that the, the, the key to this is innovation. It's not replacement of cheap energy for costly energy. Do you still have your typewriter? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it. I don't yeah, have it. I don't have it either. I, I had an, I didn't, I had an, what did I have? What was it called? Olympic or Olympia? I had one and I wasn't any, I wasn't any good at it. <laughs> anyway, that's, a, that's a great, I love that the typewriter analysis. You know, we were talking earlier uh, with John Carney at Breitbart about um, uh, these climate banks, Tomas, they're set up in the Inflation Reduction Act, fraudulently named, they set up these climate banks. There's a bunch of them. And, um, you know, they're going to allocate money. God knows how much money. Um, there's about $30 billion that maybe would be the capital, and then they'd make loans to various projects. And then we learned this week, Tomas, about all this energy department subsidies to battery companies. The trouble is the battery companies are owned by the Chinese, <laughs> Okay. Of course. What, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I thought we were in favor of onshoring. So we we've got climate banks with unlimited budgets, and we've got battery subsidies for Chinese. I don't get this. This doesn't sound right to me. But you're the distinguished former CEA chair. Tell me, <laughs> tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, the, the whole issue is this is very very similar to COVID. It turns out, in my views, because in, for COVID. What we did, we're trying to prevent disease uh, by having people locked up or, you know, reducing face-to-face activity, which is very costly. It was a lot of foregone economic activity from doing so. What saved the day for COVID was innovation, Mm. essentially, Mm. in terms of the vaccines and treatments. (laughs) And it's going to be the similar story for for green energy. It's not going to be that we're going to substitute towards more costly green energy. That's not going to be the solution, especially for the poor. It's going to hurt the poor a lot more than it hurts the rich. And it's going to be that we have new innovation where we basically bring down, as soon as we bring down, uh, you know, renewable energy prices below fossil fuels, it will not, we we won't need governments to kind of mandate anything, right? The market is going to go there if it's cheaper. And that's the innovation that's needed. And it's very little focus on that compared to substitution mm-hmm. away from, you know, uh, cheap to cost the energy. And your other point, we, we're running out of time, but Tomas, your other point, uh, fossils are cheaper than the wind farms or the solar. That, that's, that's a key reason why there's only three, four, five percent uh of these other alternative renewables, so-called, it's just too damn expensive. That that's your point. Well, that's a, that's a key reason we have global warming. If it was more expensive, we wouldn't need fossil fuel, right? The market would just go to greener energy uh, automatically, and we wouldn't have the the problem to start with. The whole issue is that the cost of fossil fuel is cheaper, and but the green energy costs are coming down over time. They're not coming down as quick as we want them, but they will come down below fossil fuels. Once that happens, the market is going to go there. You don't need, need any government subsidies mm-hmm. to go there then. All right. You got it. Tomas Phillips in the University of Chicago, uh, former head of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration. Thank you, Tomas. Uh, I'm Cutlow. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about innovation, fusion versus fusion versus something or other, fusion versus fission. Mark Mills will tell us about it from the Manhattan Institute. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. 
Larry Kudlow. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. I see. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back. Excuse me. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. So Tomas Philipson was talking about innovation and technological breakthroughs to solve the issues of uh, climate change and climate warming. And sure enough, this week we had this past week we had announcement from the very famous Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory out in California that um, made some headway in something called fusion. Fusion, uh, well, I'm going to let Mark Mills from the Manhattan <laughs> Institute, he's going to describe this. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't understand anything about this stuff. Uh, this is like, yeah. it's, um, what are we doing? F- uh, nuclear reaction, when we split the atom, it's yeah. called what? That's fission. Fission. Yeah. And you split big atoms. Uranium is heavy like lead. Right. It's big, and you can split it relatively easily. Right. And it releases that famous uh, conversion of matter to energy, the E equals MC squared. We, we've all heard so much about if, even if we don't understand it. Right. It just means it's a crazy big number, millions of times more energy per, per, per pound of material than combustion or wind or solar, just incredibly more energetic it's great stuff and uh, then so i knew that fusion, wait i knew fusion. that i knew that yeah now, fusion, fusion is what so that's what stars do uh the center of the star it's kind of a big thing the star they're huge it's not the sun under incredible pressure at high temperature you can you push the hydrogen atoms together makes them bind that also results in an incredible release of energy the mm. inverse you're making a bigger atom out of a small, small one mm. but it also is an it's an atomic phenomena incredible we've been trying to uh replicate fusion ever since uh we understood what fusion was how we knew how stars worked it's really remarkable you know that this uh announcement deserves a lot of credit for being an incredible breakthrough in science they got to ignition you know when you turn your car on you get ignition uh, but to use a simplistic analogy, if you got a car engine to have ignition, but you didn't have the rest of the engine, I mean, if you just get combustion ignition, but no engine, no wheels, no steering wheel, no car, you don't have a vehicle. I mean, we're, this is this is a, a big big step in science. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't tell you anything particularly useful about how soon we'll have practical fusion, although with maybe one caveat. The joke in the, in the physics community has for 50 years been fusion is always 50 years away. Mm, right. But with this discovery, it might actually be only 50 years away, finally. We actually have a, we, may, we huh. may now finally have the roadmap. It might be close, which well, is 50 years. Well, when you were talking about having an ignition in the car, you turn the ignition on, 
and nothing happens. Well, that's what the Bidens are doing, right? Because they won't let ga- they won't let you have gasoline in the car, so you turn on the ignition and nothing happens. Now, the point here is that, that was a joke. Just kidding, I'm having some fun because I know you will. But fusion is a renewable, okay? Right? Fusion is not fossil. It's a fabulous yeah. innovation. But you're saying it, I mean, uh, the press reports were like decades away. Uh, You're saying it could be, you know, 50 years away. Or is that, you know, I don't want to be optimistic or pessimist. I don't understand anything about this. I'm just asking you, how soon can this be done practically and commercially? Well, it's probably more than decades away. Only you just need to know two things that are sort of uh, useful fact points. And there's in some of the press coverage. It's usually buried. The uh, amount of energy taken from the grid to produce the fusion energy is the key thing. You, wanna, you want more energy coming out than you put in. That's called energy production, <laughs> not energy consumption. Mm-hmm. And it's about 200 to 300 times more energy taken from the grid to produce a unit of energy from fusion at that breakthrough. So we're, we're not close in that sense. To have a useful energy-producing machine, the stuff you put in, the energy and materials, you have to get 100 times more out. Not a hundred times less. Oh, right. That, that's where right. we are. We ignition was a physics breakthrough, not a practical breakthrough. The other thing is the fuel pellets. I mean, you know, gasoline is a fuel. Uh, the solar photovoltaic cell is sort of, in a sense, a fuel. You know, costs money to make the fuel pellet to do the fusion reaction. Each pellet costs about a million dollars to be handcrafted, hmm. and they can sort of light one up sort of once a day. You're going to have to light. 10 a second up to make a power plant and mm-hmm. figure out how to make millions of those pellets for, you know, dollars, not millions of dollars. And that I think we'll, we'll conquer that problem, but it, it might take, you know, 30 to 50 years. It's going to, it's going to take time. But you have to get it into some kind of energy grid. Well, that right? detail. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, just, you're, you're saying here in this New York post article, I think it was New York post, each unit of laser energy put into the fuel pellet, gobbled 200 units of grid energy. Yeah. A lot of work needs to be done. So you got to somehow get it into the grid, which then would promote the electricity uh, you know, to power whatever, the economy. Well, you could, you know, you make heat. Basically, the fusion reactor would make heat, just like we burn fuel to make heat or split atoms to make heat, and you make electricity from the heat by, you know, boiling water, spinning turbines. So that, that part isn't the hard part. The hard part is you have to, you have to produce more, more energy than you consume. And we aren't there with fusion. We're not even close to mm. there with fusion. It's, you know, there's, and of course, electricity, the important thing here, and this is some kind of magical breakthrough. It's important again in science, but about a quarter of the world's energy is used in electrical form. So three quarters of the rest is not electricity. So if we if we had a magic way to make electricity, that be that's meaningful. I mean, but it doesn't change everything. Mm. In fact, the way to change everything, if you want more carbon-free electricity, is to promote today now uh, many more the conventional nuclear power plants that we already know how to build. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not very popular with most places. It's starting to become more popular slowly, but it's. Uh, you know, forty. We've had forty years of hysterical anti-nuclear opposition. Uh, so the things that we know how to use, we oppose. The things we don't know how to build, we support. It's kind of, mm, yeah. kind of, kind of infantile. 
Well, the base energy load, I mean, I've heard this from a lot of people. Rick Perry has said this. Dan Brietta has said this. You know, people worked in the energy department, Steve Coonan. I mean, the, the base energy, Mark Mills, is got to be natural gas and nuclear, right? Sure. sure. Isn't that, yeah. those are the... For, the, for electricity. Cl- yeah. For transportation oil. Clean burning. Oil. Yeah. Oh, well, that's right. So transportation... Uh, that's still going to be stuck on oil, right? What else a we long, got? long time. Well, the Bidens are doing a great job. They want to stop all that. <laughs> no, no wanna, well, yeah, sure. Well, Newsom, as you as we've talked about before, Governor Newsom has has joined a, a bunch of other states and countries banning the, the purchase and sale of internal combustion engines mm-hmm. uh, a mere decade from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the on the on the belief that electric cars can uh, eliminate uh, oil use and they're practical, I mean, you know, electric cars are nice, but the reality is where we're sitting today is uh, about one percent of the world's uh, transportation is done with mm-hmm. electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. So ninety nine percent of the world still using engines that burn fuel. Even the most optimistic forecasts will have something like sixty to seventy percent of the world's transportation burning oil, and then you've got the whole problem of the oil that gets burned to make the batteries to make the electric vehicles, right? which is a big number, a huge number. Well, that's the thing. I mean, so Newsom wants to end the uh, combustion engine and gasoline-powered cars, but even if you own an electric vehicle right now, he's telling you you can't recharge it because he doesn't have Mm -hmm. enough electricity because he won't let anybody – you know, mine for natural gas. Yeah, well, that's true. Really? I mean, isn't yeah, that his yeah. dilemma? I mean, I know Gavin. Well, I know Gavin Newsom, but these are very extreme. I mean, these are extremely extreme ideas of his. Well, well, they are, and and we we do know that he's not stupid. You, I right. met him once. He's, know, he's, a, he's a smart I know. guy. He's a smart guy. I totally yeah, agree with you. And I was, and when I met him, I I found him this when he was governor. The governor was rather mayor of mayor. Francisco. Uh, he was charming, charming. smart, right. engaging. I mean, he, he'll he be a formidable candidate without any question. Couldn't agree but, more, well, Mark, by the way, personally, on a personal level. Oh, he will. He, but he, I couldn't gonna, agree with you more. He's a good guy. He, I think he is. He just I, has I, crazy I, ideas now. Well, you know, it may, maybe he'll be like Bill Clinton and change and move to center. Who knows? But here's what we do know is that he was clearly told behind closed doors that the policies he's pushing will lead to blackouts in California. That's the only explanation mm. for him signing legislation to keep their nuclear plants alive and actually sign legislation to pay to keep it alive and running because the the push to more solar and wind on California's grids, even as they add more electricity-consuming cars, and they're leading, quote-unquote, the country in that, they're, they were heading off a cliff, and he was told that. And so he, to his credit, he changed his mind. Mm-hmm. And he also authorized last year, quietly, the construction, emergency, emergency construction of, to your point, natural gas-fired combustion turbines to, in order to keep the grid lit. So right. good for him. Well, good for him. Right. Maybe reality will hold. Maybe. All right. So fusion and fission, we got a ways to go yet for this fusion stuff. Mark Mills, as always, I actually understood this, at least for the moment. I may forget it later this afternoon, but I got it. Mark Mills, nobody better. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We are going to take a break, and on the other side of the break, as we always do, we're going to do some stock market work. It was kind of an ugly week for stocks, but we got a couple of sharpshooting experts that are going to help pilot us. I'm Cudlow. 
Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back. Excuse me. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. So Tomas Philipson was talking about innovation and technological breakthroughs to solve the issues of uh, climate change and climate warming. And sure enough, this week we had, this past week, we had an announcement from the very famous Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory out in California that um, made some headway in something called fusion. Fusion, uh, well, I'm going to let Mark Mills from the Manhattan <laughs> Institute, he's going to describe this. I don't I don't know. I, I don't understand anything about this stuff. Uh, this is like, yeah. it's, um, what are we doing? F- uh, nuclear reaction, when we split the atom, it's yeah. called what? It's fission. 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 Yeah. And you split big atoms. Uranium is heavy like lead. Right. It's big and you can split it relatively easily. Right. And it releases that famous... A conversion of matter to energy, the E equals MC squared, we, we've all heard so much about, if, even if we don't understand it, right. it just means it's a crazy big number, millions of times more energy per, per, per pound of material than combustion or wind or solar, just incredibly more energetic. It's great stuff. And right. then... So I knew that. Fusion, Wait, I knew fusion. that. I knew that. Yeah, <laughs> I knew that. So, equals MC squared. Yeah. Now, exactly. fusion so is fusion. what? So... That's what stars do. Uh, the center of a star, it's kind of a big thing, the star. They're huge. It's not the sun. Under incredible pressure and high temperature, you can you push the hydrogen atoms together, makes them bind. That also results in an incredible release of energy. It's the mm. inverse. You're making a bigger atom out of a small, small one. Mm. But it also is an, it's an atomic phenomenon. Incredible. We've been trying to uh, replicate fusion ever since... Uh, we understood what fusion was and how we knew how stars worked. It's really remarkable. You know, th- this uh, announcement deserves a lot of credit for being an incredible breakthrough in science. They got to ignition. You know, when you turn your car on, you get ignition. Um, but to, to use a simplistic analogy, if you got a car engine to have ignition, but you didn't have the rest of the engine. I mean, if you just get combustion ignition, but no engine, no wheels, no steering wheel, no car you don't have a vehicle. I mean, we're, this is this is a, a big big step in science. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't tell you anything particularly useful about how soon we'll have practical fusion. Although, with maybe one caveat, the joke in the in the physics community has for 50 years been fusion is always 50 years away. Mm, right. But with this discovery. It might actually be only 50 years away, finally. We actually have a, we, may, we huh. may now finally have the roadmap. It might be close, which well, is 50 years. Well, when you were talking about having an ignition in the car, you turn the ignition on and nothing happens. Well, that's what the Bidens are doing, right? Because they, <laughs> ga- they won't let you have gasoline in that's the car. Right. So you turn on the ignition and nothing happens. Now – the point here is that, that was a joke. Just kidding. I Having know, some I fun because I, I know you will. But fusion is a renewable, okay, right? Fusion is not fossil. It's a fabulous yeah. innovation. But you're saying it. I mean, uh, the press reports were like decades away. Uh, you're saying it could be, you know, 
50 years away? Or is that, yeah. you know, I don't want to be optimism or pessimism. I don't understand anything about this. I'm just asking you, how soon can this be done practically and commercially? Well, it's probably more than decades away. Only you just need to know two things that are sort of uh, useful fact points. And there's in some of the press coverage, it's usually buried. The uh, amount of energy taken from the grid to produce the fusion energy is the key thing. You want to you want more energy coming out than you put in. That's called energy production <laughs> on energy consumption. Mm-hmm. And it's about 200 to 300 times more energy taken from the grid to produce a unit of energy from fusion at that breakthrough. So we're, we're not close in that sense. To have a useful energy producing machine, the stuff you put in, the energy and materials, you have to get 100 times more out, not 100 times less. Oh, right. That, that's where right. we are. We, ignition was a physics breakthrough, not a practical breakthrough. The other thing is the fuel pellets. I mean, you know, gasoline is a fuel. Uh, the solar photovoltaic cell is sort of, in a sense, a fuel. You know, it costs money to make. The fuel pellet to do the fusion reaction, each pellet costs about a million dollars to be handcrafted. Hmm. And they can sort of light one up sort of once a day. You're going to have to light 10 a second up to make a power plant hmm. and figure out how to make millions of those pellets for, you know, dollars, not millions of dollars. And that I think we'll, we'll conquer that problem but it, it might take you know 30 to 50 years it's going it's going to take time but you have to get it into some kind of energy grid well that right? detail <laughs> yes i mean well, just, you're you're saying here in this new york post article i think it was new york post each unit of laser energy put into the fuel pellet gobbled 200 units of grid energy yeah. A lot of work needs to be done. So you got to somehow get it into the grid, which then would promote the electricity uh, you know, to power whatever, the economy. Well, you could, you know, you make heat. Basically, the fusion reactor would make heat, just like we burn fuel to make heat or split atoms to make heat. And you make electricity from the heat by, you know, boiling water, spinning turbines. So mm. that, that part isn't the hard part. The hard part is you have to you have to produce more more energy than you consume. And we aren't there with fusion. We're not even close to mm-hmm. there with fusion. It's you know, there's and of course electricity. The important thing here, and this is some kind of magical breakthrough, it's important again in science. But about a quarter of the world's energy is used in electrical form. So three quarters of the rest is not electricity. So if we if we had a magic way to make electricity, that'd be it's meaningful. I mean, but it doesn't change everything. Mm. In fact, the way to change everything, if you want more carbon-free electricity, is to promote today, now, uh, many more the conventional nuclear power plants that we already know how to build. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not very popular with it, most places. It's starting to become more popular slowly, but it's uh, you know, forty. We've had forty years of hysterical anti-nuclear opposition. Uh, so the things that we know how to use, we oppose. The things we don't know how to build, we support. It's kind of yeah. kind of infantile. Well, the base energy load, I mean, I've heard this from a lot of people. Rick Perry has said this. Dan Briette has said this. You know, people worked in the energy department, Steve Conan. I mean, the, the base energy, Mark Mills, is got to be natural gas and nuclear, right? I'm, sure. Isn't that, that yeah. those are the, for, the for electricity, clean, yeah. for transportation, oil, clean burning. Oil. Yeah. Oh, well, that's right. So transportation, uh, that's still going to be stuck on oil, right? Where else a we long, got? long time. 
Well, the Bidens are doing a great job. They want to stop all that. <laughs> no, no to, well, yeah, sure. Well, Newsom, as you as we've talked about before, Governor Newsom has has joined a, a bunch of other states and countries banning the, the purchase and sale of internal combustion engines mm-hmm. uh, a mere decade from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the on the on the belief that electric cars can uh, eliminate uh, oil use and are practical, I mean, you know, electric cars are nice, but the reality is where we're sitting today is uh, about one percent of the world's uh, transportation is done with mm-hmm. electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. So ninety nine percent of the world still using engines that burn fuel. Even the most optimistic forecasts will have something like sixty to seventy percent of the world's transportation burning oil, and then you've got the whole problem of the oil that gets burned to make the batteries to make the electric vehicles, right? which is a big number, a huge number. Well, that's the thing. I mean, so Newsom wants to end the uh, combustion engine and gasoline-powered cars, but even if you own an electric vehicle right now, he's telling you you can't recharge it because he doesn't have mm-hmm. enough electricity because he won't let anybody um, – you know, mine for natural gas. Yeah, well, that's true. Really? I mean, isn't yeah, that his yeah. dilemma? I mean, I know Gavin. Well, I know Gavin Newsom, but these are very extreme. I mean, these are extremely extreme ideas of his. Well, well, they are, and and we we do know that he's not stupid. You, I right. met him once. I know, he's, a, he's a smart I know. guy. He's a smart guy. I totally yeah, agree with you. And I was, and when I met him, I I found him this when he was governor. The governor it was rather mayor of mayor. Francisco. Uh, he was charming, charming. smart, right. engaging. I mean, he, he'll he be a formidable candidate without any question. Couldn't agree but, more, well, Mark, by the way, personally, on a personal level. Oh, he will. He, but he, I couldn't gonna, agree with you more. He's a good guy. He, I think he is. He just I, has I, crazy I, ideas now. Well, you know, maybe, maybe he'll be like Bill Clinton and change and move to center. Who knows? But here's what we do know is that he was clearly told behind closed doors that the policies he's pushing will lead to blackouts in California. That's the only explanation mm. for him signing legislation to keep their nuclear plant alive and actually sign legislation to pay to keep it alive and running because the the push to more solar and wind on California's grids, even as they add more electricity consuming cars, and they're leading, quote unquote, the country in that, they're they were heading off a cliff and he was told that. And so he to his credit he changed his mind. Mm-hmm. And he also authorized last year, quietly, the construction, emergency, emergency construction of, to your point, natural gas-fired combustion turbines to, in order to keep the grid lit. So right. good for him. Well, good for him. Maybe right. reality will hold. Maybe. All right. So fusion and fission, we got a ways to go yet for this fusion stuff. Mark Mills, as always, I actually understood this, at least for the moment. I may forget it later this afternoon, but I got it. Mark Mills, nobody better. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We are going to take a break, and on the other side of the break, as we always do, we're going to do some stock market work. It was kind of an ugly week for stocks, but we got a couple of sharpshooting experts that are going to help pilot us. I'm Cudlow. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Join us during the week, Fox Business Network. Name the show's Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if for some reason you can't be there at 4, just um, text your favorite 9-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. 
And here you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, run throughout the country, around the world, and the entire solar system. So let's talk stocks. Actually, it's kind of an ugly week for stocks, particularly the last couple, three days. Stocks were down about, I don't know, 1,200 points. Not too good. We'll bring in Nancy Tangler, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments. She's a um, columnist and author. That, by the way, five-star morning star rating. And Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. Actually, Nancy, you're smart. You're a very smart person. So maybe you can think about We were just talking to Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute about fusion versus fission. So there's a big breakthrough on fusion from the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. I say you're smart. You probably understand this. I don't understand a word of it. We just did a whole segment on it, and I don't understand it. But is there any um, any commercial companies that actually – are working on fusion? I mean, it may be 50 years away. I That's what Mills said. <laughs> but I just wondered, you know, how can you play fusion in the stock market? <laughs> uh, I, I, good morning. Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure you can, Larry. I actually um, ha- have had an ongoing correspondence with the CEO of Meridian Energy, who, who is trying to raise capital to build green refineries. And he can't get the capital bill because every time they get somebody interested, um, the, the Bidens open their mouths. And then, you know, everybody runs away from CapEx spending in, tech, in, in oil and energy, right. which is down something like 75 percent from the shale boom. So I, I, I think it's exciting. I think it was also a, a diversion. It's, it's somewhat of a political diversion um, to bring this up at this point because the commercial applications are so far away. But awesome. Uh, I probably won't be around to see it, uh, but I still I still think it's great news. Um, innovation has always been how we've solved our problems in this country, um, much more so than regulating um, and trying to make markets in you know have the government become a central planner, which is wh- where we're headed in many instances. That's so, that's the key exciting. point. You know that what you just said: innovation versus central planning. And we had Tomas Philipson was talking about the how. Earlier today, the uh, Biden policies have made us a shadow member of the OPEC uh, cartel. And um, the best way out of that is innovation in the private sector. Jeff Kilberg, do you understand fusion? You're a, you're a smart guy. Notre Dame education, they teach fusion there. Yeah, I took a minor in fusion. Come on, Larry. You know they taught that <laughs> stuff then. But it is interesting to hear, and I appreciate you starting with a smarter person with Nancy, and she brings up a great point. But, you know, I think our head, when you say fusion, some uh, some smoke does come out of my ears. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> oh, God. All right, kids. Let's get back to work. Jay, That's right. That's right. Jay Powell speaks and the market crashes. All right. That's the way I looked at this. And and by the way, I'll start with uh, Nancy on this. About as clear as the Federal Reserve institutionally will ever get in forecasting a recession is the way I read Jay Powell. I mean, his uh, estimates, the Fed's estimates are for a half a point growth next year um, and a one point rise in the unemployment rate, which really is is saying we, we're looking for recession to conquer inflation 
institutionally, these agencies never say that, but this is the closest you'll get. And the stock market didn't like any of it. At least that's the way I read it. Tell me, tell me where that's wrong. No, you, well, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and I think it's important to, to remember that. Uh, well, let me put it this way. There was a headline that came across yesterday that said this is the worst December since 2018, which, if you recall, was Fed Chairman Powell's first bear market right. uh, when he talked too hawkish and then had to flip-flop on that as well. I, I think I'm surprised that the market is always surprised by what we already knew. We knew he was going to remain hawkish. We, you know, we were pretty convinced he was going to raise 50 basis points. And he's already said all of this. So in the short term, you get these knee-jerk reactions. But I'm actually starting to become somewhat constructive because I think we're closer to the end than we were. Mm. And you know, this really laser focus on the dot plot drives me nuts because remember in September of 2021, they weren't even going to raise rates until 2023, and they weren't going to even get to 2%, according to the dot plot, until 2024. So the predictive powers of the Fed have been kind of the perfect contrary indicator. And I think the market has, I mean, I know the market has led, Jeff, I'm sure you, you would probably agree with this, has led the Fed all the way through this cycle. And, and so the rhetoric, I don't pay attention to it anymore because the numbers are showing PMIs are rolling over, inventories are declining, shipping costs, wheat, copper, corn, oil, all on the downtrend. And we saw that in the, in the core CPI numbers uh, this last week. So you should be looking forward. You bring up a great point, months, Nancy. You know. and, and Larry, she just kind of pitched me the ball. So let me run with it here because I think Nancy brings up a great point. Think of the faith and confidence that the market is putting into Fed Chairman Powell and the Fed. And the Fed is, I don't know what the technical term is, but they've been horrible on forecasting. So let's just rewind to her point a year ago. The Fed was talking about inflation being transitory, and we all bet the House that it was transitory. And sure enough, what happened? They had to really shift and move the pendulum. So they moved rates from 1.5% in the 10-year to 4.5% nearly. Look at the two-year. The two-year went from 35 basis points up to nearly 5% in a matter of six, seven months. So I think I agree with Nancy. I am cautiously optimistic. I know you made fun of me after the October lows, Larry, that I was cautiously optimistic, but the economy is in a pretty good place. And I go back to the old bond trader in me. And we have to really understand, and yes, I'm well aware that the two-year, 10-year treasury curve is inverted, but look where the two-year has come down to. What is that indicating? We're at 4.18%. We've had a dramatic move down as well. We've seen the 10-year tuck under 3.5%. So I do agree with Nancy. I think the worst is in the rearview mirror, but the fact of the matter is that the Fed is wrong. They're going to be wrong. They're going to have to move the goalposts to come back to the market because the market, specifically the bond market, is going to provide leadership like it has all year. Well, Nancy Tengler, um, what's the profits outlook? I still believe profits are the mother's milk of stocks. And um, uh, Jeff Kilberg said the economy is in pretty good shape. I don't, I don't think it's in pretty good shape. I do think the labor market looks like it's in pretty good shape. But other stuff is not. You were mentioning that, PMIs and so forth. The money supply has collapsed. The index of leading indicators is plunging. We have bad retail in retail sales negative, industrial production, manufacturing negative. I get all that. Uh, the question is, what are profits? Because I, I think profits have held up better than people might have thought. Agreed, and uh, and so have margins, Larry. Um, so I guess one of the things that no one seems to be talking about is that if you looked at the dollar this year up about 22% at peak, uh, that had about an 8% drag 
<clears throat> excuse me, on corporate earnings, on S&P company earnings. And now it's down 10%, mm-hmm. uh, and that will provide somewhat of a tailwind. So while you have many strategists coming out and saying earnings are going to be negative, I'm not necessarily convinced. You know, we sit on the conference calls and listen to what managements are saying, and you have a company like Palo Alto Networks, which raised margin guidance and earnings guidance. Uh, Adobe came in very strong. Another company we love, Xylem, uh, has has also raised guidance. So I, I think I think it's going to be a mixed bag, and it's going to matter what you own uh, in the first half of the year, to be sure. Because while I do think we will end 2023 higher than where we are now, uh, it is going to be choppy. The first quarter, I mean, just be ready. I think it's it's going to be uh, pretty choppy, and especially so if we get this this monstrous omnibus bill um, through. That that's going to add more in terms of transfer payments somehow or another. And we saw that, we saw the effects of that when the California checks came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that they propped up, you know, um, spending and now we've seen it come back down. So there's so many, you know, there's so many variables as there always are, but maybe even more than usual. I've called this the most complex um, investing climate in my, you know, almost 40 year career. And so I, I think it's important to, to, be in high-quality companies of reliable growers and even better dividend growers because that's how you're going to come out the other side of this in good shape. And those strategies have done significantly better, as has ours, than than the market indices. So that's where you really want to be, what you want to be thinking about because earnings in some areas are going to be, you know, disastrous. And in others, we're we're going to continue to see strength. Jeff Kilberg, uh, how do you interpret you have a lot of media companies uh, laying off, and I, I'm reading in the paper, I guess it was this morning or yesterday, that um, David Solomon of Goldman Sachs is talking about a layoff. How do you read all that, financial services and media layoffs? I think it's a recalibration, Larry, and I think when you look at what the stock market did, the hiring, and look at a name like Amazon. Amazon, you know, my thumb has been sore this holiday season from hitting the app and ordering, so look at Amazon down 50% having some layoffs as well. But I think this is a recalibration or resetting because it was just so good for so long. So I think Nancy brings up a great point of understanding what you own kind of like a Peter Lynch 2.0. And I actually managed the essential 40. So Xylem, uh, Palo Alto. And you think about these names, these tangible blue chip names, you throw in a Berkshire, you throw in a Johnson and Johnson, United Health. I think you have to embrace the dislocation. So when you see media, when you see meta, Facebook, I, I don't like calling it meta, Larry. I still call mm-hmm. it Facebook. But when you see all this recalibrating and resetting, I think you have to be understanding and, and, and embrace that. And I was just talking about Tesla this week. You could argue fundamentally Tesla was a buy $75 higher up at 225 But all of a sudden, we are now at max Elon. He's recalibrating Twitter. There's a lot of political emotion there. And it's $75 lower. So Tesla's the name we're looking at, but we want to own quality. We're also looking at fixed income for the first time. You know, there's a lot of high quality preferreds out there. There's also a lot of high yielding bonds that were really got damaged and oversold this, this year. So we're rethinking a lot of things going into 2023, but some of the themes, the sector themes, they will persist. We want to own energy. We want to own healthcare, industrials, that that historic shift from growth to value, that will continue because people are going to realize that they have to own quality names, these blue chip tangible names, as we see continued volatility. But the last thing I would say, there's no panic out there, Larry. I know people are concerned about earnings, households are in a little better shape, but we have a ton of headwinds. But look at the VIX. The VIX is 
happily under 25, and it's been there for the last couple of weeks. We look at the S&P 500. It hasn't really moved in the last three months. We've had a ton of Fed meetings, a ton of volatility, and a ton of digest. But I think as we get through, no bad news may turn into some good news in 2023. All right. All right. Let me take a break. I got Nancy Tangler of Lawford Tangler Investments. I got Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. Uh, fairly optimistic assessment after a bad stock market week. Maybe we can tear that apart and do some fusion. Or is it fission? Fission or fusion? I don't know. Fusion. We won't. Nancy's right. There's one thing for sure. We are not going to be around to see the fusion if it's 50 years hence. We'll give it our best shot. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here talking stocks with Nancy Tangler of Lafayette Tangler Investments and Jeff Kilberg of KKM Financial. Um, let me just pose, Nancy, um, you... We were talking about this earlier. You've got a deeply inverted yield curve now. Three-month T-bills at four and a quarter, I'm calling it. The 10 years at three and a half. That's the old New York Fed model that says uh, the probability of recession in the next year is very high. The Conference Board Index of Leading Indicators has been falling significantly. The M2 money supply growth actually has turned negative. It's like gone from plus 30 to minus something or other. We're seeing some of these coincident indicators now, retail sales, industrial production, manufacturing come down. The PMIs look very bad, and the Fed is determined to keep tightening. Uh, my question is, um, is there a significant recession in the cards for 2023? All right, here we are, uh, Christmas weekend minus one. We're at the end of the year. Is there a significant recession next year and what will the impact be on stocks well there's yeah well first of all i all of those are the things that that you mentioned the metrics you mentioned are the things that we look at every single week and day uh and they and they are showing that the economy is slowing and heading for um recession in my view and one of the most important is the one you mentioned which is leading economic indicators but the, the yield curve is telling you that as well, but it's also telling you that the Fed's done, because if you look at the two-year, it's now below the Fed funds rate. Uh, and I, I'm not saying they are done, but I do think they need to be close to being done, uh, or, this, or this recession will become very severe. Because, in, you know, in 1982, when Volcker um, just started to consider, um, you know, changing policy, the market actually began rising before he began cutting, I think it was two or three months, and erased in three months all of the losses of the previous uh, sell-off or bear market. So what I worry about now is not taking enough risk, because when this thing is over, I think stocks will melt up for this reason. They anticipate, so even in years of bad earnings growth, take 2019, uh, we were, I think, earnings growth was about 5% for S&P companies, and the index was up 31.5% that year. So I think we will return to multiple expansion uh, as investors see that, you know, managements are managing to the recession, cutting costs. We're actually already seeing that, and that's why owning companies run by 
you know, CEOs who have been through this before and have proven to be good operators is where you really want to be focused now going into 2023. I actually think that, as I said earlier, the first quarter is going to be difficult. Um, and then I think we begin to see light uh, at the end of the tunnel, which is, is not a train, but it is, but is actually um, hopeful. So I, I can't tell you, Larry, because it's going to matter on policy. I mean, how much more money is the federal government going to spend? How much, you know, how much longer is the Fed going to go? But if if the bond market is right, and it usually is, I think the recession will be somewhat shallow, um, manageable, down one percent maybe on GDP for the year. Um, but and earnings growth will decline, but the dollar will be there as well to to put a backstop. Well, I always like the light at the end of the tunnel, but sometimes. Um, things look, things look darkest before they turn completely black. <laughs> and I want to ask Kilberg. Humbug. I got, humbug. I, I got it. Look, I'm, <clears throat> I'm an optimist at heart, but you're going to, uh, the right now, the Republicans in the Senate are at war with the Republicans who were taking over the house. It's a theme of this show. And it's been a theme of my TV show. It's a stupid Stupid thing, but the result may be a two trillion dollar omnibus spending bill, which will not help the Fed. It will cause a lot more deficits and borrowing. There are no pay fors ever. They're waiving the budget caps uh, as per usual. I mean, Republicans here are just terrible in the Senate, and um, you know that has inflationary consequences at some point. And Jeff, I don't think you know. I know the bond market is predicting a lighter Fed, but I don't. I don't think the Fed's going to be lighter. Remember, kids. He, look, here's some numbers: the 12-month CPI, the 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 Cleveland Fed um, median CPI is seven percent. The Atlanta Fed wage tracker is six point four percent. That's a problem. The Fed needs to get to two percent. And that's why I think they are going to overdo it, just like they always do. So Jeff Kilberg handled that. I mean, I think there are tough <laughs> issues out there. There are tough issues. And I think the first caveat is that the Fed's going to change that 2% target because they can't achieve it. You're absolutely right. But what's interesting is that there are a ton of headwinds. I'm not going to debate that or be naive, Larry. But what's interesting, you brought up two things, which I think are being underappreciated. It's the two shock absorbers, which may potentially allow this economy to have a soft landing. And those two components are the money supply. We saw the expansion of their money supply go from January 2020, from $15 trillion to November of 2021, post-pandemic, up to $21 trillion. That massive expansion, they're trying to get a little bit of that toothpaste back in the tube, and it's not working. Look at the balance sheet, Larry. It was at nearly $9 trillion. If they continue on their current pace of $95 billion, which sounds like a lot, they're still going to be above $8 trillion by the end of next year. So that lofty balloon swollen balance sheet, which now they have to service at a much higher debt, which is another problem for another show. But what's fascinating to me is I think the bond market is providing leadership. It is showing at the Fed that you have moved the pendulum once again too far. So they will come back to the market in the same way they came to the market when you saw the 10-year and the two-year moving higher in Q1 of 2022. So I do take a little bit of solace in that the Fed is historically wrong. And I do take a little bit of solace that we have some gridlock in Washington per usual. That goes back to when you were in the administration in the 80s. And I think that type of gridlock post-midterm election year, no one's really talking about. That gives a little bit of certainty. And to Nancy's point, the biggest risk I think right now in the marketplace is not being invested. Okay. 
I just wanted to lay it out there. That's all. Um, that's the light at the end of the tunnel. I get that. I get that. It's going to um, be a bumpy road. It's going to be a bumpy road. Well, you're absolutely right. There's a lot for us to digest as investors. But I think when you look at the are, overall market, look look wh- overseas at China. China may reopen. That could be a little bit of wind in the sail that no one's really anticipated. And, and the PMIs in France, Germany, and the Eurozone at large have been rising over the last couple of months. That's interesting. Yes. Oh, my God. Don't get me started on Europe. Oh, my God. <laughs> Nancy Tangler, thank you. Jeff Kilberg, thank you, folks. We're going to do some money in politics on the other side of the break. We have John Fund and Steve Moore, and um, we're going to talk about this uh, betrayal. The Senate Republicans are betraying the new House Republican conference. It's a terrible story. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with John Fund of National Review and uh, un- <clears throat> Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and also the Unleash Prosperity Hotline. And his book is Godzilla. Uh, gentlemen, I just want to play once again uh, from Rand Paul, uh, who was speaking to me on the Kudlow Show this past week. It's a very dramatic, uh, very dramatic quote. Please, please take a listen. The bad news is that, is that last time I tried it, there were four votes, me and three others. <laughs> this, this brings upon us the lie that Republicans really are fiscally conservative. The Democrats aren't. They will not pretend to be fiscally conservative. Not one of them up here gives a darn about the debt. Republicans all profess to, but when you make them vote on the pay-go resolution, pay-as-you-go, that we can't have new spending without offsetting it, they always vote to exempt it. So the omnibus will be 3,000 pages. We'll get it two hours before they want to pass it. No one will read it, but hidden in the 3,000 pages will be we're going to waive PAYGO. So Steve Moore's right, it would take 41 votes. But the other thing is, 41 votes would stop the big spending. If 41 of us said no and held our ground until there was a compromise, we could force Democrats to reduce spending. We have completely and totally abdicated the power of the purse. Republicans are emasculated, they have no power, and they are unwilling to gain that power back. The only way they can get it Divide the spending into 12 bills and then decide to hold one of them hostage or two of them hostage and then apply policy changes in the House. But they've got to do it. They've got to capture this. And we'd have to do the budget the way it's supposed to be. Budget, 12 appropriation bills, and then try to attach some policy like removing the 87,000 IRS agents from the IRS budget. When we try to do it in one bill, the Republicans don't have the intestinal fortitude they always collapse, and they fear shutting government down so no policy objectives ever get added. The only way we can do it is if we actually do what we're supposed to do, budget, 12 appropriation bills, and then decide which ones you want to fight right. over. So um, you fellas may have heard that before. If not, you've heard it now. It's a pretty strong statement by Rand Paul. I think he's about 100. I think he's 1,000% right. Uh, I had asked him about Steve Moore's uh, column on the budget caps. But the whole issue here, and I want you to both, you know, let's talk about this. Republicans have given up the power of the purse. Republicans have emasculated themselves. They've emasculated their message of uh, spending cutters and inflation cutters. They've emasculated regular order. I mean, and Mitch McConnell is at the heart of this. 
uh, the Senate leadership is essentially betraying the possibilities of a great new House uh, leadership, Republican House leadership. I begin with you, Steve Moore, to comment on all this, because I think this is the issue here at the end of the year. Yeah, I agree with that, Larry. And by the way, I can't improve on much on what Rand Paul just right. said. I mean, I, I could not possibly say it any better than he did. That was a great interview. Uh, and by the way, congratulations, Larry. I see you're the number one business show on TV in 2022. Well, awesome. You. Way to be, thank my you. friend. That's, thank that's an incredible accomplishment. Thank you. It's a great, uh, great so, blessing. So uh, I would just add one thing to what Rand Paul said. You know, we have spent uh, in the last year of Trump's administration, last months of the Trump administration and the first two years of Biden, $5 trillion, $5 trillion above what we normally spend. Now, you know, they normally spend 4 or $5 trillion a year. They've spent $5 trillion more than that. So what Rand Paul is talking about is clawing back about 3% of that, 3% of the $5 trillion. And you're telling me the Republicans in the Senate can't vote for a 3% cut of $5 trillion of progress? By the way, most of which the Republicans never voted for in the first place. It is absurd. And I'll, I'll make one other quick point. Not only is this horrific policy for our country, we've got to get the spending and debt down. But, Larry, i got to tell you, conservatives around the country that I've been talking to last week are infuriated mm-hmm. with the Republicans mm-hmm. that they would they would engage in this kind of spending behavior. It's like they don't want to play Santa Claus. Yeah, that's right. Look, there's so many things wrong with this story. John Fund, uh, I want to get politics here. Um, in a sense, McC- uh, McCarthy, McConnell's apparent sign-off on an omnibus spending bill, which will be – no one knows. There's no top line. I mean, Rand Paul is right. You don't know until they're going to give you two hours to read it, which no one will do. But it'll be close to $2 trillion. His apparent sign-off on that is a betrayal of what Kevin McCarthy and Scalise and the new Republican leaders of the House want to do post-January 3rd. They don't want an omnibus bill for the rest of the year. They'd like a short-term bill for a couple weeks and then let them have at it. Marsha Blackburn was on our show last night, Senator Blackburn, and she said, give them a shot. She said it a couple of times. Give them a shot. See what they can do. They can cut, rescind, change priorities, go after the IRS agents, put more money on the border, uh, stop, for example, COVID Uh, relief programs from becoming permanent parts of the mandatory spending baseline, maybe cut taxes, maybe open the fossil fuel spigots. Give them a shot. McCarthy, I mean, McConnell's not doing that, John. It is a betrayal, and I do not understand it. Well, Larry, uh, we used to have a few simple rules that would guide Congress and the federal government. Simple rules work best when you have complex decisions to make because you fall back on principle. Here are a couple few principles we're ignoring. One is do not legislate multi-trillion dollar spending bills just before a holiday. Uh, You're being held hostage by the holiday. Uh, It's ridiculous. I mean, you're putting, you're putting a family gun to the head. You know, you can't, you can be with your family or you can, you know, stay and argue over spending. Well, who's who in Congress is going to take that deal? Uh, Secondly, term limits are a good idea, 
Mitch McConnell was a great majority leader. He has a great career. He's done a lot of good. But he's 80 years old, and just as it was time for Nancy Pelosi to leave, it's time for Mitch McConnell, after over a dozen years as Republican leader, to say, time to pass the torch to a new generation. Third principle, uh, transparency. And you mentioned that, Larry. It is The House, at least, is adopting in its new rules in January a 72-hour rule. Well, you have 72 hours to read the bill. No one in America... I don't care whether it's left, right, or center, believes it's a good idea to pass multi-hundred trillion, hundred billion dollar bills with no time to read them. Because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. when scandal, corruption, and waste enter the process. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right on all counts. Um, and by the way, one quick thing. Those were things that Republicans remember in the 94 revolution and when they won in 2010. They had committed themselves to do. And what they're basically doing, right, John, is they're reversing a lot of the promises they made, you know, during the Republican Revolution. A lot of the very useful reforms in the way Congress worked. Ending earmarks. Oh, earmarks. Oh, my God. The earmarks. I mean, this is the Richard Shelby problem. $650 million worth of earmarks. But John Fund talking about earmarks, okay, of the 10 leading earmarkers. So far in this bill, eight of them are Republicans. This is the party of fiscal budget restraint? Really? Earmarks? I mean, here we go again. What is going on here? How can anybody believe believe the GOP wants to limit government or cut spending or cut taxes or cut inflation under these circumstances? They're going to pass a $2 trillion omnibus bill with record earmarks, with Republicans, the most valuable players of the earmark playoffs. And um, to me, you know, Rand Paul used the word emasculation. That's what the Senate GOP is doing. They are masculating themselves. Well, Larry, I argued with, you know, earmark pork barrelers in the Republican Party 15 years ago when I was at the Wall Street Journal and the late Ted Stevens came up with the best possible argument for earmarks. He said, look, the prerogative of Congress to spend money, we can do it and spend it better and wiser than the pointy-headed bureaucrats in the federal bureaucracy. And I said, you know, your argument, Senator, would make sense if you hadn't surrendered so much of Congress's power already to independent agencies. Who gave Leela Khan of the Federal Trade Commission uh, power to basically regulate American business. Who gave Gary Gensler at the Securities and Exchange Commission the power to basically rewrite all of securities law and then force people into ESG investments? Congress did. Mm-hmm. If Congress wants the power to ladle out pork barrel spending, first seize back the enormous amounts of power you've surrendered to unelected bureaucrats. Yes, I totally agree with that. By the way, nobody ever told the SEC it had the power to force companies to adhere to climate rules and run the companies. The SEC the wants to checked, run the companies. The last time I checked, the SEC doesn't, isn't the meteorological service. It doesn't have anything to do with weather. No, no. You know what? I had uh, Hester Purse on. You know, she was the Trump appointee. We put her on the SEC. She's still there. She's fabulous. She called it the Securities and Everything Commission. Oh. <laughs> I just thought that was great. Steve Moore, um, 
By the way, it's not five Senate Republicans. It's only four. It's three plus one. I know. I got that wrong. But, In fact, uh, I didn't realize when you when you when you played that tape from from but, uh, Rand Paul, I got it wrong. I said there were five. There were only four. But, um, you know, by the way, but, one of my great but, heroes, uh, Larry, was uh, uh, Tom Coburn. Remember him yes. of, of Oklahoma? Yes. And he was he was the fiscal conscience of the Senate, and he used to say of remarks. That, you know, because they say, oh, it's just a little bit. It's a two percent of the budget or whatever it is. And and he used to say, look, uh, and it's so true even today that earmarks are the gateway drug yes, yes. to <laughs> trillion dollar spending. Bill. Yes. And he was exactly right. Yes. This is another proof of that. Look, the other thing that's going on here, gentlemen. Uh, actually, let's take a break. We're going to take a break because I want to raise some more issues about, um, Steve, your column, you know, that conversation with Rand Paul was triggered by your column. That's why he keeps saying Steve Moore is right. And I want to talk about that, why 41 Republicans won't vote to adhere to the budget caps and the automatic spending cuts if they can't do it. That's very important. And then I want to revisit this. Senators, Republican senators are saying that um, Kevin McCarthy really wants an in- uh, an omnibus spending bill, which he really doesn't want. Anyway, we're here with John Fund and Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Cudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. We're here with John Fund of National Review and Committee to Unleash Prosperity and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity uh, and still the Heritage Foundation. Look, gentlemen, the whole debate about whether or not to have a CR versus um, an omnibus. Steve, no one is talking about your point, which Rand Paul eloquently discussed, and that is you still have on the books, going back to 2010, budget caps. And every year the Senate waives the budget caps but they shouldn't. And if they enforce the budget caps, it would either trigger an automatic spending cut across the entire budget. By the way, I'm fine with that. Or at least a negotiation to come to some, you know, sequester that would uh, roughly approximate. Your number was $130 billion. Uh, okay, that's a good number. But my point is, my question is, why aren't they talking about that? No one – the debate is CR versus Omni. No one is talking about un, you know, enforcing these budget caps, which are still the law. Right. And those budget caps require something called a sequester, which would be like an automatic across-the-board cut. And I'll never forget when this was originally devised. Remember under Phil Graham, remember the Graham yes. button, uh, when Reagan was president. I'll never forget my one of my one of the great uh, economists of all time, uh, the late great Bill Niskanen, said it so well. He said, "This is a really bad idea whose time has come." <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? And uh, you know, this is a bad idea whose time has come. Mm-hmm. If this is the only way we're going to get cuts, then you've got to do it. And the the other kind of irony of this is that it was the Democrats in 2010 who controlled everything. Obama was president. The Democrats controlled six, they had 60 votes in the Senate. They had all the House members. Uh, they had control the House. And they set up this contraption. And now Republicans can trap them in that re- contraption. But guess what? Republicans don't want to do it. And in fact, just one other thing about the earmarks that I find so funny. You know, the vote in the House when the Republicans uh, took over the, um, you know, the, uh, the majority was 150 to 50 in favor of um, 
in favor of uh, getting rid of, I mean, keep it, bringing back uh, earmarks. And what's funny about that is I probably talked to about, you know, 50 or 60 House Republicans. Oh, I voted against that. It was a, it was a, it was a secret vote. So they're all claiming they're against well, it. Sure. Even though they all voted to bring them back. But it only takes 41 Republicans to yeah. stop the waiver. That's and, right. And to 41 out of 50. And to restore. I mean, you know, they don't even want to do that in the Senate. It's a three percent cut. Three percent. Right. And that's why Rand Paul said the last time last year uh, he moved, you know, and he wanted to vote on this. And he had support from three others besides himself. All right. Which is really kind of tragic. Now, John Fund, I want to go to you on this. You know, the political angle here. What? Why won't the Republicans cut? That's point number one. Why won't they do this? And I want to ask you this, John. They, Mitch McConnell's allies, including uh, who's a what's he uh, from Texas, whatever his name is, not John Cornyn Cruz. Yeah, John Cornyn. Uh, Roy Blunt is part of this. These are friends of ours, so it's not personal. But they're saying that Kevin McCarthy secretly... John Fund, wants the omnibus to go through. McCarthy maintains, he said it to me on the air, he said it to uh, Hannity on the air, he said it to everybody who was listening, that he wants a short-term CR so that the new GOP can go to work and change the priorities of the budget and economic policy. So what is up with this? What kind of a defense is this from the McConnell allies that McCarthy secretly wants an omnibus. That's nonsense. Look, I can't read Kevin McCarthy's mind, and Kevin McCarthy is pretty good at you know, hinting to people that he agrees with them regardless of their position. Uh, but let's take him at his word. Uh, the Senate is not only called hilariously the world's greatest deliberative body, it is called the last bulwark for Americans free, America's freedoms. Uh, because, you know, if you, you have the filibuster, you have many tools in the Senate that you don't have in the House. Well, Larry, look, a, a retiring Republican senator told me the biggest single problem, they have two problems regarding spending that aren't talked about enough. The first problem is that a third of the Republican senators are set are basically 65 or over, and their bladders will not take going to the floor and standing up against spending. They just will not stay up till 3 a.m. fighting this. They will not filibuster. They will not argue. They just won't do it. Uh, that's an, that goes back to my point about needing fresher, younger leadership, with new ideas uh, like Rand Paul's. And the second problem is the ghost of government shutdown. Uh, I believe, and, and by the way, you know, Clinton aides that have said this in, in their memoirs, the Republicans were close to winning government shutdowns twice during the Clinton years. But they stopped too soon. Bob Dole right. undercut them. Right. The bottom line here is, Larry, if you actually believe that the American people agree with you that we need to have a government that lives somewhat within our means and that there is some waste and fraud that you can cut 3% from the budget, you have to be able to risk having the media call you names. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is there's so many essential programs that when the government shutdown happens, basically what? They shut down the National Archives. They shut down the Lincoln Memorial, the Social Security check will go out, the Medicare checks will go out. So come on, give us a break. If you're scared of the media, you you shouldn't be in this business. See, uh, Steve Moore, John Fund has got to be right here. You can win a government shutdown. You can. 
Look, go back again. You know, you mentioned Reagan, 1986, the original Graham-Rudman-Holling sequestration. Reagan went through several government shutdowns and one larger defense spending. That was the issue in those days. He wanted from Democratic House. Yep. These guys could do the same thing, just make it clear what they're shutting down for and what their goals are. Because John is right. Look, I have been through so many mm-hmm. government shutdowns under Reagan. And recently, Trump had several government shutdowns, too. Nothing gets shut down. Nothing essential gets shut down. In fact, the, the workforce doesn't even get shut down. Almost everybody nowadays is an essential worker, for Christ's sake. But the, you know, Medicare is mailed out. Social Security is mailed out. Medicare is mailed out. Everything's mailed out. You know, the only thing that happens is you, you don't polish Abe Lincoln's leg in the Lincoln Memorial. That's all. And and John's other point, I know they have weak bladders. So Bring a Porto sand and put it onto the floor of the Senate and let them fight it out. But they shouldn't be fearful of a shutdown. What they should be fearful of is what Rand Paul said. They've given up the power of the person. The Republican Party is emasculating itself. That's what they should be afraid of. And and by the way, we're not really even talking about a shutdown here, though. I mean, the the point that Rand Paul was making is if they could just get 41 Republicans to vote for this uh, the sequester. There's nothing that Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden. These are, this is the law of the land. It automatically goes into effect. And the other thing that's so interesting about this debate is why would you why would you do a budget with Nancy Pelosi? They, there's a reason they call this a lame duck session. Yeah. She's a lame duck, right? right? So why not wait to literally three or four weeks and then Kevin McCarthy takes the uh, gavel? Don't you think they might have a little bit more leverage with with, with McCarthy as the speaker rather than uh, Nancy Pelosi? Come I, on, I can't wait for that day, by the way, when we wrench that gavel away from Nancy Pelosi. But by the way, McCarthy, uh, if they keep the CR so they have to come back and do their own budget, um, you know, it gives McCarthy leverage with some of the renegade conservatives in the Republican Party. Because some of those guys, not all of them, some of them are just a bunch of showboats. But some of them actually substantively want to just make sure that Kevin will be a conservative speaker. Okay. Uh, McCarthy, McCarthy, McConnell is taking that leverage away. And that's why it's a complete betrayal. I mean, I've never seen I People are saying internally, John Fund, I've heard this whisper that these old Republican, uh, you know, McCarthy, uh, McConnell types, the old guys have been there forever, uh, that their problem is not Democrats. Their problem is the House, the new House, that there's a war between the House and the Senate. I mean, well, actually, Larry, you're correct. McConnell last this earlier this year said um, upon the retirement of one member, he said, and this member understood that in this chamber, our real enemy is not the opposition party. It is the House. Right, 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 right. No, no, I've heard that uh, cliche. And I've also I've heard other people, you know, there's a lot of whispering going on here. Um, so, I, I mean, this is the issue. In the next couple of weeks and into the new year. Anyway, thank you both, gentlemen. John Fund and Steve Moore. Folks, I'm uh, Larry Kudlow. It's a great pleasure. We will be with you Christmas weekend. We will be here broadcasting on Saturday. You betcha. Silent night, holy night, Kudlow night. How about that? 